Well, welcome everybody to part two of Nassendorma's deep, deep, deep dive into Mexico 1986. If you haven't caught up with the uh, group stages podcast, then you'll be able to find it pretty much where you found this, I think would be the uh, the best place to start. And um, you might you know, start at the uh, beginning. So um, if you click off now, that's fine. Go back and hear the group stages. If not, then you can carry on because we're about to go into the round of 16. And with whom are we going into the round of 16? Well, first of all, Rob Smythe. Hello. And Mike Gibbons. Hello. And me, Gary Naylor. So, Mexico 86, gentlemen. Um, we uh, have got through the group stages. We're in the round of 16. It's where it all begins to get a bit tight. I mean, with squeaky bum time is probably extra time in, in the semi-finals. But, I mean, one of the great things about World Cups is that you get a round of 16, and it's squeaky bum, really, from the, the first whistle blown in in that round, because, you know, it's do or die, isn't it? You're in or you're out. That's all right. I was going to say, teams start dropping like flies, but it's probably not the best um, <laughs> metaphor in the current climate. Yeah, no, you're right, though. I, I love the fact that it, it all happens so quickly from there. It really accelerates... Um, the whole tournament you get two teams a day going out and of course no team is safe you often get uh, heavyweight clashes so for example in mexico 86 you have france one of the favorites against oh, sorry france european champions against the world champions italy um and yeah it just all absolutely rattles along um from the moment the knockout stages start yeah uh, yeah agree with that uh, also you had argentina uruguay as well that's in the mm. uh that's in the second round um yeah, just some brilliant games in this, um, where which we'll come on to shortly. But a uh... couple of stinkers yeah. as well. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's been there's there's been different formats tried. I think in the World Cup, hasn't there? There's been kind of a second lot of groups to to avoid, you know, a team having an off day before semi-finals, yeah. uh, or indeed, indeed before finals. I think there was once a jump straight to a final or was that the Euros. Um, but I think we we all pretty much agree that uh, if you can go to the the classic knockout round of sixteen, quarterfinals, semifinals, and final, then you you, you know you're, you're dealing with uh, with a format that uh, that brings thrills and spills. And the first match in that format was the hosts Mexico against Bulgaria in the Azteca Stadium, the Estadio Azteca, one of the surely one of the best names for any ground in the world. And there were the mere matter of 114,580, which seems suspiciously accurate, but um what what an atmosphere. Do do any grounds these days hold 114,000? I'm not sure they do, you know. I'm not sure. What's American R hold these days? I think it's about uh, ninety thousand now. Um, the camp new for a while was over into this century was uh, still over a hundred thousand, I think. But it's been redeveloped now, so um, I can't think of one that would have over a hundred thousand. I mean, there must be one somewhere, I suppose, but I can't yeah. think of what it is. I mean, I don't think there are many American football stadiums that would hold that. There's probably some kind of godforsaken college in Louisiana or something which has got a football ground that holds 114,581 so they can be top of the pile or something yeah. like that. But, but um, yeah, an extraordinary think, um, attendance. Yeah, sorry, guys. I think there are some uh, college football grounds in America 
that hold over that because they still have standing. Um, ah. you, you're still there. To, and that's that's kind of what makes the difference, I think. Um, so, yeah. so once everything started to go all-seater, um, you know, you got less and less of these kind of attendances. And of course, uh, as we know, uh, because it's absolutely obligatory, those 114,580 uh, were all wearing sombreros and supporting uh, Mexico, as we found with the cultural stereotyping of the uh, mascot last week. Um, but the game itself is uh, the hosts against uh, Bulgaria and um, includes one of the, the World's Cup... World Cup's more famous goals, which I understand from the very extensive research I've undertaken, was uh, <laughs> once voted the seventh best goal in World Cup history by uh, the Dutch, who ought to know a thing or two about cricket. Yeah. Uh, sorry, about cricket. Dear me, I've got cricket on the brain. About um, about the World Cup and about uh, great goals. But um, it was scored by Negrete, gentlemen. Um, I'll, I'll, talk, I'll talk then, shall I? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah no, it's, a, it's a lovely goal. Uh, like a one, a volleyed one-two with uh, a gear on the edge of the box, and then a, uh, a very dramatic scissor kick into the bottom corner. It's it's a great goal. He had, he had form for it actually. He scored a lot of scissor kicks. There's one brilliant goal in a domestic game where he juggles it for ages in the box and then belts it over his head in the top corner. Um, yeah, just a, just a fantastic goal and a kind of every post. Apart from the ones who flop completely, they always have one moment, don't they? That they kind of mm. cherish forever. It might be um, England in Euro '96, Shearer's goal against Holland after that great team move, um, and this is absolutely Mexico's moment. I'd imagine it's the one that gets replayed the most. Um, the game itself was a pretty comfortable win. Bulgaria were were crap, to be honest. Um, <laughs> one of the third place qualifiers didn't win a game. I mean, the climate obviously doesn't help either. They'd struggled in Mexico in 1970. Um, but yeah, it's a great goal in any in any currency in any era. It says something about this tournament, I think, that in terms of all the goals that were scored in the tournament, it might not even get in the top five. Yeah, I know. The, I, the portfolio is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Yeah, and also Negrete. I mean, it's just the kind of thing that if, if you do this in a World Cup, you're never going to be forgotten. Had he not done this, or had it gone wide, you know, we'd, we'd probably have never heard of, it, or certainly never remembered him anyway. But yeah. It's just, an example of what a world cup can do for you. you know if you do something like this in the tournament you know you're never going to be forgotten <clears throat> that's a great point and obviously there's a an even better example yosimar coming coming up yeah well one of the things that struck me and it may be just you know sort of confirmation bias or, or something is that um bulgaria at that time was behind the iron curtain and um you know apart from those grainy sort of black and white nights where the commentary was <laughs> where you would have these kind of European championship uh, games. Um, we saw very little football uh, from behind the Iron Curtain. And I I wonder how many times those Bulgarian players, who I haven't sort of gone through the, the entire side, but my suspicion is most of them would be playing in domestic Bulgarian football, uh, Whether how many times they've, they've not just sample the atmosphere in terms of its oxygen content but also in terms of its its hyperbole of of mexican fervor and it struck me that when negrete plays that one two the bulgarians are almost kind of transfixed they kind of stand off him they're, they're, they're frozen um and, and i'm not saying they kind of let him have a shot but that they're, they're remarkably passive and I, I just wonder, you know, in a in a world now where 
where players are, uh, if they're they're good enough, and you know, an awful lot of international of players who will play in World Cup finals will have played in front of large crowds through club football. Um, but these guys probably didn't. I just wonder how much the atmosphere got to those Bulgarians, or am I say doing a bit of uh, ex post facto um, confirmation bias there? I don't know. Well, I think. I, um, sorry, Rob. Go on. No, no, go on, Mike. Go on. Uh, well, I, I just think Bulgaria. They, they just weren't that good a side, really. I mean, they're they're really one of the teams that benefited from the format in that you could get through in third place and get to the knockout rounds. They drew two and lost two in this tournament and st- still had a glimpse of the quarterfinals. Um, yeah, they, I just you know they weren't they weren't the side they were say you know in '94. I think only one of those play. I think Mahalov, the goalkeeper. Is the only player from this Bulgaria squad that's involved in their great run eight years later. But yeah, was he the man with the toupee? Uh, yeah, I think, I think he had a full head of hair in this. Went bald in the interim and then had a uh, a Wayne Rooney style weave uh, <laughs> uh, done, which Excellent. I think melted in New York, didn't it? I think the the, kind of, <laughs> the, the, the glue on his wig melted in the in the heat in New York. But yeah. Rob. Yeah, nothing to that. I think the point you make is valid. Uh, I'm sure it was intimidating atmosphere and uh, quite, yeah, they potentially were quite overall. But I also agree with Mike, they just weren't very good. Mexico were a decent side and you would just think they would win that game probably nine times out of ten. So we'll move on to one of the more famous games in this tournament, indeed one of the more famous games in World Cup final history, which is the Soviet Union, the USSR, uh, CCCP, for those of us who are not used to using the Cyrillic uh, script, uh, very famous letters, uh, famous now ex-nation, um, and uh, their famous 4-3 game uh, with the Belgians ultimately triumphing. And um, so, I mean, I've got a few things to say about this, but I'll bring you in first, Rob. Yeah, it was well, certainly one of the best games of the tournament, one of the most dramatic. I think it was a real shame for the tournament that they went out because they were so um, dynamic and uh, exciting. Um, and they played probably better for most of the game. Belenov scored a fantastic first goal, ended up getting a hat-trick. Um, but they just, oh, yeah, it was a strange one. Belgium started bombarding them with long balls and crosses and they kind of went to pieces a bit. I think at least one of the goals was suspiciously close to offside. Um, and it was a bit of a hard luck story. Um, in, in that, as I said, they were the better team for most of the game, but they just had a weird kind of defensive malfunction almost. Um, and yeah, it cost them. It's a shame because at that point we were potentially looking at a quarterfinal between the USSR and Denmark, who had in qualification played one of the all-time great World Cup qualifiers. Denmark won four-two. It could have been about eight all. Um, so the prospect of them replaying that in a World Cup quarterfinal was really enticing. And obviously that died when um, when the USSR were beaten. Mike? Yeah, some great, some great goals in this game, uh, particularly Belenov's first one. Absolutely um, belts it, doesn't he? Yeah, which he just smashes in off the post. And it's just, it's one of those where uh, Faf, the goalkeeper, doesn't even move, doesn't throw a hand at it. He's just beaten from the moment uh, the ball's been hit. And yeah, it's unlucky for Belenov. He scores a hat-trick and he, he goes out of the World Cup. But... It's a hat-trick. I mean, we discussed this about Gary Lineker last week. It, it changed his life, really. I mean, he won the Ballon d'Or at the end of 86. Um, he'd been in... He, uh, Dino Kiev, his club side, I think had won the Cup Winners' Cup that year. 
um, as well, which obviously helps. Uh, there's nine Dynamo Kiev players in this side and three on the bench as well. Um, but yeah, the, the def- uh, Rob makes the point about the defending. There's the On all four of the Belgian goals, the, the defending is just horrendous there by the Soviets. It's weird, isn't it? Um, there's no kind of reason for that. Yeah, it's just um, they're, they're quite basic. Yeah, they exactly. Gold Belgium score just kind of, you know, lumped into the box and uh, they just they just couldn't deal with them. Um I'd say uh, Jan Kurlemans, who's who's a player I've always really liked, uh had a had a brilliant game in this. I used to love the way he played. No shin pads, you know, socks rolled down and was just this constant uh ball of energy that drove that side, I think. But um yeah, definitely to get a game this good in the, you know, the knockout round of sixteen, um they're just fantastic, and would would probably, I would guess, make it into a top ten World Cup games of all time. What time would that game have finished over here? Was it? Would it have been eleven o'clock kickoff? So it would have gone like one, two in the morning. It, it, it says four p.m. CST, which um, I suspect is the the time in Mexico. That's what Wikipedia yeah, says. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and they're about sort of. Yeah, they're they're uh, what they're ahead of us, aren't they? Uh, no, hang on, they're behind us. We're so five we... hours ahead of them. Oh, so nine o'clock. Oh, yeah, so yeah, finished. That's, yeah, that's a belting way to spend a Saturday night watching that. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean the 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 one of the Belenoff goal and and big Ron Atkinson is on there. Cocom says you won't see a better goal than that in the tournament. And, you, know, <laughs> you can see Maradona say just hold uh, my coke, uh, hold my beer, and yeah. uh, you know he has a. He has a, a different view, but we're, we're all sort of obsessing over over curves these days, and and uh, looking for flattening the curve. And it's one of those shots that the ball goes up and then seems to proceed at the same kind of height as the top of the goal, uh, without losing any height nor gaining any height, and kind of arrows into the corner. Um, it's very spectacular, beautifully caught by the cameras as well. And you know, we're just seeing. In this World Cup, um, the beginnings of the kind of improvements we've seen to camera work. I mean, it's still way behind what we're we're used to, but um, uh, we we are getting some of the kind of camera work that we expect in the 21st century beginning to come through uh, there. A lovely finish from uh, Enzo Schifo to to get Belgium back into the game in the second half. They turned around at 1-0 due to Belanov's goal. Um, and one one other thing that I, I picked up during my uh, extensive uh, research is the assist for, I think, Nico Klassen's uh, fourth goal comes from a player called Kleisters. So I thought, is it? Could oh, it, it is, yeah, it is. Oh, yeah. it is, yes. It's Kim Kleister's dad there um, giving the assist for one of the uh, more famous goals in, in Belgium. Uh, history, but yeah, it was sad to see the uh, Soviet Union go. Uh, called consistently on commentary, referred to as the Russians, even though mm-hmm. um, they were, as you've already pointed out, Mike, uh, mainly Ukrainians. But I think we all thought at that time that Ukraine was kind of to Russia as kind of Cheshire is to England. Um, little did we know the uh, the history, particularly down there in the in the Caucasus and and that part of the world. But um, but yes, uh, 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 sad to see the uh, the Soviets go out. It's not a, a comment you make all that often. They were they were playing a little bit against type, weren't they? They weren't a, a kind of big red machine, sort of grimly going through the motions as the cogs turn round. They were full of flair and, and speed. attacking. That was the yeah, thing. Speed. speed. So they scored. I think they scored twelve in four games, which is pretty good going. But yeah, the big thing was that the struck me was just the sheer speed of a, of their attacking. Um, yeah, it's a shame, but 
but that's that comes back to what you said. You, you're only as good as your last uh, last game and all that. Once you get to knockout stages, you can't afford to have a dozy twenty minutes defensively, which is kind of what they did either side of uh, extra time or going into extra time at the end of normal time, and that was it. Custom. Yeah, and so we 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 get up the the next morning thinking, God, that World Cup game was fantastic. How long do we have to wait for the next one? And it turns out we don't have to wait much time at all because it's the very next day, and it's the uh, glorious uh, golden shirts of Brazil against Poland, and and Brazil uh, pretty much cruise to a four nil win, punctuated by one of the most ludicrous goals in World Cup history. Uh, Mike, you can come in first on this one. Uh, yeah, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say they're quite cruised to this. So at the start of the game, uh, in the opening uh, sort of twenty minutes, I think it is, Poland hit the post and the bar uh, before Brazil get what looks to me to be quite a soft penalty um, to go one ahead, which Socrates scored, and then Socrates he does that great one-step penalty. It's the yeah. about the most laid-back <laughs> penalty you could. Uh, wish to see really which so that then kind of went wrong for him in the quarterfinals which yeah. uh, we'll get to but then yeah Poen had to chase the game then there's there's one point in the second half I think it's at 1-0 where uh, Zivi Boniek almost scores a sensational overhead kick um, from around about the penalty spots like Wayne Rooney's against Man City puts it just wide of the post um, but after that I mean Brazil just opened them up then uh the Yosimar goal, which is his second game and his second great World Cup goal, uh, was just brilliant. Um, it's uh, just, I, I can't think of a, a comparable goal to that Yosimar one. It's um, the way he kind of cuts in and then he slows down a bit as he kind of looks like he's going to jink to the byline and cross it and then just lashes a shot from just a absurd angle, really, that flies past uh, Minarchek, the goalkeeper. And you just look at that and think, how has that gone in? But it just, I think it's just the sheer pace of the ball and this, this freakish dip it got on it. It managed to go yeah, up the, and over the goalkeeper and into the far corner. The only goal I can think that, that compares with it, and it doesn't compare with it in its execution, but it does compare with it, I think, in terms of angles, power and trajectory, is the... Uh, it's the famous Van Basten goal in the uh, Euro uh, mm. finals because it's from that kind of ludicrous angle. It's hit ridiculously hard and yet doesn't go over the bar, yeah. goes over the keeper and under the under the bar. And it had an element of that, but entirely, of course, different build-up. But but yes, I mean it. Uh, it shows how this this game, you know, the the saturation coverage that we all got used to and now are missing terribly. Um, how <laughs> it still has the capacity to make us sit up and mm. think, well, how did that happen, uh, Rob? Yeah, not much to add really. Um, I think what Mike said is true. For an hour, it was a pretty close game. Then once it went to two 0 Brazil could just sit and pick them off. I and mean, the third goal kind of sums up sums that up. Edinho makes an interception in his own half. Uh, goes down the end, the other end, and gets a return ball and scores. And <clears throat> by the end, it looks emphatic, but I, I don't think it reminded me a bit that United under Mourinho at the start of his second season, they kept winning four nil, but they were kind of flattering four nil. There were a lot of goals in the last ten minutes. It'd be one nil, quite tight, and then teams would just be picked off. And it, this wasn't dissimilar to that, I don't think. Yeah. Um, so yeah, some some really nice goals. Um, obviously Osimhen's, but Adinho's is a lovely goal as well, and he was um, yeah. he was one of the better 
centre-halves in the tournament. It's worth pointing out that that's four clean sheets in a row for Brazil in the tournament, um, mm. which is very unusual, possibly unique for them. I just wonder if, if Ray Winston's floating head appeared in adverts <laughs> at half-time and, uh, you know, it's Brazil 1, Poland 0, and he's saying, here, get on this one. Mm. Uh, what odds there would have been for 4-0? Because I reckon they'd be pretty short, really, mm. because yeah. once they got a second one, they were going to get yeah. one or two more, weren't they? Uh, but, yeah, but, yeah. I uh, think at the... Sorry, guys, I think at this point as well, So uh, this 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 is Brazil winning 4-0. They'd won their final group game against Northern Ireland 3-0. And after a relatively slow start where they won a couple of games 1-0, it just, I remember thinking that this felt like them kicking into gear and you just think, ah, they're going to win this. Um, you know, because they, they were keeping clean sheets. They were so clinical as well. Um in this game, the way they punished Poland on the on the break for the, the last two goals, uh, the fourth goal was um, it was a break up field by Zico, I think, uh, where he wins a penalty, which Kareka then scores. But uh, they at this point they were starting to look very ominous, Brazil. Mm. Yeah. So we'll move we'll move to the next game, and I'm I'm not casting aspersions on the good uh, denizens of uh, FIFA, um, but we we all know that. Up until that time, the, the rule was that European teams win in Europe and South American teams win in South America or indeed Central America, as this would be the case. But we've already seen Mexico go through. We've seen Brazil go through. They might be slightly worried about getting uh, a little South American heavy, so they line up Argentina against Uruguay. We're not going to get rid of one of them, isn't it? Um, so uh, this this uh, match quarterfinal, uh, Argentina will run out 1-0 uh, winners. Uh, gentlemen. Yeah, quite a low-key game. Really. I think Uruguay were not quite on their best behaviour, but on better behaviour after kicking lumps out of everyone in the group stage. And they've been, I think they've been warned by FIFA or something. Um, Maradona ran the game, hit the bar with a free kick, uh, created chances. Uh, the goal itself was a bit scruffy. I think it was like a ricochet off a defender or something. Um, but I think, yeah, Argentina kind of had them at arm's length. Um, and it was a pretty... Pretty forgettable game, really. Yeah, Maradona had a go on, Mike. I was just going to say, Maradona had a goal disallowed in this game as well, um, which shouldn't have been. He also he set up two virtual open goals for his teammates that they somehow conspired to miss. And uh, Maradona actually calls this his best game of the tournament. Um, Does he? That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, which is in a really packed field, obviously. Yeah, and also it's worth, it's worth pointing out this was a bit of a revenge match for Argentina. This whole World Cup was a series of revenge <laughs> matches for them. So the 1930 World Cup final, the first ever World Cup final, was between Argentina and Uruguay, uh, which Uruguay won in uh, Montevideo. So they, they'd kind of waited 56 years uh, to get them back at the World Cup, Argentina. Um, and yeah, the winning goal by Pedro Pascui, who's now... The manager of Bangor City in the uh, <laughs> C- the Cymru North uh, <laughs> League. Uh, Absolutely uh, fantastic. I I just want to expand a little on a on a, a point both of you have made in in some ways there because not everybody listening will have. Uh, 
heard our, our paean of praise to uh, Diego Maradona. Um, you can find that in our list of podcasts. I think it's in season two, but I'm not absolutely certain. Um, but I just want to expand upon the on a point that you made there, Rob, because it's a word that gets kind of bandied about, but it's or a phrase that gets bandied about, and it's not always it's not always as explicit as it might be. But but no man did this more uh, obviously. Uh, and you talk there about Maradona ran the game. I mean, how how do you describe Maradona running a game? Well, just kind of everything went through him. Really, he played as a kind of typical number ten. Um, it was uh, it, that that team. I mean, it's a slight exaggeration, but when I watched them, I always think of. Um, Southampton under Alan Ball because when he first joined he basically got all the players together and said got Letitia in the middle and said um, basically this is your best player Give them. he didn't quite say you're all crap but it was implied <laughs> this is your best player whenever you get the ball look to give it to him and I do think that's what happened really um, and then obviously within that there will be so he's he just did everything really like sometimes he would just play little short passes other times he would beat players or uh, open things up in other ways. Just kind of, he was just a focal point. Uh, I think there are two different ways, aren't there? You think of, kind of traditionally, you think of people running the game being more of a, a deep-lying player, like a Pirlo or a Scholes, um, who get on the ball more than anyone else, or even even like a Rodri now, it's slightly different, but, you know, he could often have like 150 passes in a game for Man City. Um, but with Maradona, it was slightly different because uh, it was obviously further forward, um, more kind of <clears throat> more incisive as well, um, but just a, just a focal point for everything. If you watch those games, the ball's just always people are always looking for him, basically. Mike, uh, yeah, can I concur with what Rob said? Really, and it's just, um, I mean, the reason I, I I've always thought that Maradona is the greatest player I've ever seen is just because of that and also it's something about his personality he just manages to impose himself on the game um, even, when, even when he's not on the ball sometimes it's just some kind of aura about him something about his reputation and obviously his ability and you know that the, the he's always a constant threat and it, there's just something magnetic about those players you know about the way the ball always seems to arrive at them some arrive at their feet somehow um, he had that more than any player I've ever seen, I yeah, think, uh, and cer- cer- certainly in this tournament. I mean, I've I've never seen a football tournament where one player is so much better than every other player in the tournament. And there were some really, really great players and great performances in this tournament. Uh, but Maradona was head and shoulders above them. Um, yeah, I've n- I've never seen a player that far ahead of his peers. Yeah, he ever, was indeed. I Head, shoulders, and hand above some of the players uh, there, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I tell my my kids really when they ask, you know, how good Maradona was. I said, well, you put him in any of the eight teams in the quarterfinals, and that team wins. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, that's how that's how good he was. The the story you told there, um, a slight uh, diversion, but I remember reading somewhere that. Um, it's Gary Mills or someone like that, and he's in the Nottingham Forest dressing room with Brian Clough, and Clough says to him, uh, and remember, when you get the ball, give it to the genius. And <laughs> Gary Mills looks up, and he he sort of glances at uh, Trevor Francis, the world's one million, first one million pound footballer, and he says, 
Trevor. He said, no, not him, him. And he points at a fat uh, Scotsman with a fag <laughs> on. And of course, that's John Robertson. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, there's, a, there's a bit of that. And I, I'm glad you made that point, Mike, because looking back on the tournament um and even even at the time it was it was maradona had an aura his personality um just dominated the field of play um he he was of another of another planet and it wasn't it wasn't just the way you know you you kind of fear that that messi is going to go on one of those runs he could he could he could almost dominate the game without doing very much at all, just picking the ball up in the centre circle, knocking it short, knocking it long, carrying the ball, whatever it was. But but the, but he, he somehow, there was somehow, it was about him that, that it was his time and he was, was going to do it. And, you know, it, it, it sounds hyperbole and it sounds like a cliche, but I really do believe if you put him in any of those eight sides, they win because he was going to win that from beginning to end by fair or, as we later we'll talk about foul so so that's Maradona uh, against Argentina and then in the um, in the evening we go into uh, a real heavyweight clash of the uh, European powers uh, with uh, Italy against uh, France now um, up until then of course uh, France had only won one uh, tournament in the previous 20 odd years i think they won the euros in 68 but they'd won the euros in 84 so they'd got over a bit of a a kind of psychological block about having talented sides that didn't win and there was a you know a sense that this that this might be the tournament for france and uh whereas italy you kind of always have them no matter how ineffectual they look on paper um they always seem to turn up for big tournaments so this was a this was very much a, a big uh, match so Italy France Mike uh, yeah the, the point you make about France uh, being one of the favourites he's got so in the previous World Cup in 82 what what kind of let them down in the semi-final against West Germany is that uh, their goalkeeper um, Ettore was a bit of a weak link and also they, they had an, a bit of an imbalanced midfield um, which uh, West Germany uh kind of targets and just kind of went through at points but they, they'd resolved both those problems by this World Cup uh, they had Joel Batts in goal who's a, uh, a really good goalkeeper and they brought in Luis Fernandez, so he's the the fourth corner of that uh, that magic square and then yeah as, as Rob said earlier what a brilliant game to get in the second round you know the world champions against the European champions and, and, and one of them has to go out um, and France won this pretty comfortably um, in the end I think I think 2-0 flatters Italy uh, so Platini scores his first goal of the tournament um, and then Tagana finishes them off they're both set up by uh, Dominic Rosto uh, who's another player I always really liked he had a, he had a really good tournament um, at Mexico he also had a really good head of hair as I recall <laughs> uh, yeah he did he had the kind of bouffon uh, thing <laughs> going on didn't he he did poodle rock in, uh, um, but yeah, fantastic player, and, and both, 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 yeah, yeah, but both uh, the French goals, uh, a sort of short passing moves that go right through the middle of Italy, basically uh, cut their Catanaccio defence right open. Um, and yeah, they knew he scored several more times as well. Uh, Luis Fernandez wallops one off the bar from it's something ridiculous, like forty yards. It's a ludicrous strike. And it just goes through the thin Mexican air, and there's quite a lot of those in this tournament. 
where the keeper's just left standing and it, it just uh, it clatters into the uh, the woodwork. So, um, yeah, re- really good win for France and a, a bit of a marker down for them that that they were serious uh, serious contenders for the trophy. Rob? Yeah, I'm not much to really. Just to, what Mike said about the short passings. There was such a lovely, lazy elegance to that team, uh, which you see in a lot of the goals they scored. Probably none more so than Platini's uh, opening goal in this game. Nice through ball, just a really gentle lift over the keeper. <clears throat> Italy were interesting because they'd struggled in the group stage, but that wasn't necessarily a problem. Like they'd struggled in the group stage in 82 and then got better and better and obviously won the tournament. So I think there was a half a sense that maybe they would, maybe their poor form was just a, you know, them kind of slowly revving up in the tournament rather than them being over the hill. But actually what the France game showed was that they it, it was one tournament too many for that World Cup winning team of 82. Yeah. Um, and they were well beaten. I agree about Rochester, actually. I think people often say of this France team, they didn't have any forwards, which is true up to a point. But actually, I think it's a bit harsh on Rochester, who was the best of the ones they had by, by quite some distance, I think. I mean, in my memory, he's a he's a kind of prototype of of lots of goal scorers we we see these days because he didn't really play through the middle for memory. He was more a wide player who kind of cut in, he used the space that was yeah. available wide. Or am I getting him mixed up with Didier Cisse, which is always a possibility for me? Well, they were both. Um, I think they both started out as wingers and then became well, effectively wide forwards. I think that was the thing and. Yeah, you know, this France team they interchange quite a lot as well. You know, Putini got forward, so he, you know, you kick off in a formation, don't you? But players move around. You know, Putini would often end up the furthest man forward, um, and you know, Rosto would drop wide or back into midfield, that kind of thing. Uh, but he he was their best forward. They had Yannick Stopirai scored in this game. Yeah. Uh, Bruno Bologna was on the bench, and I think Papam because he'd had a, a bit of a nightmare in the group stages had been. Uh, relegated back into the squads because uh, I mean this is one difference with this World Cup and the World Cups you get now you had to pick five substitutes you couldn't have your whole your whole squad on the bench like you do now so um, yeah I don't think we saw Papan again until the uh, third fourth uh, place uh, playoff but uh, okay. Yeah. I, you mentioned Luis Fernandez uh, earlier. I always felt he was sort of underrated amongst the uh, the, the kind of four musketeers that France had in the Magic Square. I I loved Fernandez as a player because mm. he did a lot of the dirty work. He he blocked and he tackled, but when he got forward, he was a real threat. I felt he was a very much a complete midfielder. Yeah, terrific play. Him and Tigano were the kind of blue collar workers, weren't they? But they were they were better than that, though. They could both play absolutely. Both brilliant runners. Tigana with the ball, Fernandez more without it. Um, yeah. But yeah, superb players. I mean, he was a kind of prototype Xavi Hernandez as well, wasn't? Oh, no, Xavi. Is it Xavi Hernandez? You know, Xavi, the Barcelona yeah. player who took a long time to be recognised for his uh, his contribution to to that great uh, team. I I watched um, one of those. Um, programs they have on ESPN or whatever it was, uh, Trans World Sports or, or something, yeah. uh, last night on uh, YouTube, and it was the 72-74 West Germany uh, team. And the, the clips of matches they show is just a kind of endless procession of Gerd Muller scoring goals <laughs> from the edge of the six-yard box. Um, but I, I've always had that team as as 
being about the best European team that I've seen, particularly if you kind of consider them alongside uh, the uh, three times European Cup winners uh, Bayern Munich at, at that time. And I, I, you know, again, it's impossible to compare across eras because of changes in in um, conditioning and pitches and everything else. But I, I'd still, on a kind of level playing field, expect that team to to win against almost any opposition from Europe that they, you put them up against. But I think I said last week that this kind of 84, 86 French, 82, 84, 86 French team, if I had to watch only one European team, club side or international side, on a kind of continuous loop on a desert island when I'm the, 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 the last survivor of coronavirus or something, that these are... These, this that era of French football would probably be it because they were such a delightful side to watch because they, there was a certain vulnerability as well as as Gallic arrogance and um, as well they were just you know they were a Victor Hugo novel on on the <laughs> field uh, just really really uh, a hell of a watch and of course you know they they kind of have their uh, eighty two. Um, uh, sporting tragedy going going out and uh, and you know they they have their win in eighty four in the Euros um, and and they have uh, they have um, their their uh, semi final here as as well so it's uh, it's got everything that French side um, but we move on and we move on um, to uh, a match that says and it's uh, I'm sure you guys will have a lot to say about it but it almost is. I think summed up by its uh, its detail: Morocco nil, West Germany one. Matthias, eighty-seven minutes. Hmm. Mike, do you uh, want to start us with that one? Yeah, I don't have a tremendous amount of notes on this one. I have to say, but uh, it was it's quite a close game. Actually, you know, Morocco um, gave uh, West Germany a really good game, and we should, yeah, we shouldn't overlook what Morocco did in this tournament. Um, they're the first African team to make it to the knockout stages of a World Cup. Uh, you know, they they won the group. They won Group F, um, England's group. And, uh, yeah, ran West Germany pretty close in this, but just got sucker-punched in the last few minutes. Um, they conceded a free kick 30 yards out, and uh, while they're assembling the wall and getting ready, uh, Matthias uh, shoots low around the wall and just whips it into the bottom corner. Um to win the game and Morocco don't have enough uh, time to respond. Um, and yeah, and that's just uh, what West Germany did in a lot of uh, games in this tournament. They, they just got the job done um, mm. and got through to the quarterfinals. Yeah. In my notes going down after each Germany game, I've just written bloody Germans exclamation mark because it was very much them at their most bloody Germans or at least their most bloody minded uh, Germans. And, you know, there's there's much to admire in that. But um, if Morocco just had that little bit more belief, um, perhaps that little bit more nous. I think it was a real missed opportunity, actually. I think they didn't quite. They were probably the better team, certainly the more accomplished technical team I just think and I suppose it's kind of you know decades of football history that is kind of embedded that actually African teams don't don't belong here they don't get beyond this stage certainly not against West Germany and I'm sure that played a part at some subconscious level um, because on merit they could have easily won that game the other thing I suppose is that you're right the timing of the goal was an abs- was absolutely savage really because I think they they thought they might kind of pick Germany off in um extra time obviously the climate would be in their favor the longer the game went on 
Um, but the timing of the goal, I think, was the 89th minute. Just, uh, yeah, that was it. It's a shame, really, because they, as Mike said, they added so much and they actually, they could have achieved even more, I think, not just in this game, but also in the first two group games, which were goalless, had they had a, a, a wee bit more um, collective belief. Yeah, there's a, a question that my, my dad used to ask, and I'll, I'll come to it now, and you'll probably say the answer is it actually did happen, it's just that I don't know about it. But he, he used to say after World Cups, you know, 82, 86, even up until 1990, I think, and perhaps even beyond that, where you saw these these national teams and you saw how technically gifted and athletic uh, many of them were and clearly were playing to plans and and tactics i mean it, it wasn't kind of you know zaire and whatever it was and haiti and and, and stuff which you know looked like uh, looked like teams who who just assembled in the in the car park and been given shirts and told to go out and enjoy themselves these were proper footballers and a proper team and yet they they kind of disappeared so quickly why why didn't sort of scouts from Especially, uh, t- not just top clubs, but the kind of you know second level in Germany, in Italy, think, in in England, obviously, go out and scout some of these players. And I, th- I I might be wrong, but I think a lot of them, a lot of good African players, played in France around that. A time. A lot did. Mm. I think a lot did, and some in in Belgium, particularly when Belgium had that kind of visa scheme. Which England, was England didn't really. Um, England didn't really bother with overseas players from anywhere i mean obviously a few in the 80s but not many i mean i suppose with italy in particular it was such a high profile league and they could only have two or three Mm. foreigners that i guess they tended to go for superstars where possible um it'd be interesting to see that actually did it were there any um or many african players in Serie A in the 80s in particular but i I certainly know for example a lot of the cameroon team from 1990 played in france often actually in second division which makes what they achieved even more interesting. I, th- I think some of them actually grew up in France as well because obviously there was there was the, the kind of uh, French connection, Algeria and stuff stuff like that as well. Um, but it is it is remarkable that that African players were um, showing their, their skills and yet so mm. distrusted for so long in top European I'm just, leagues. I'm just having you know, a one, one can speculate there was... on the reasons for that, but I think we all know the main mm. one. Well, there was um, uh, Rabin Majir who played for Algeria um, and who played in the Algeria team. I think he may have even scored when they beat West Germany at the 82 World Cup. He uh, played for Porto in the 80s and yeah. scored in the, in the, uh, the 87 European yes, Cup final. against West Germany, uh, against Bayern Munich, yeah. Yeah, so he he was uh, he was a high profile African player, in Europe, but you know, it very much a kind of outlier, as you say. Um, even when um, the the Cameroon uh, team that uh, were, were the kind of seen as the breakthrough team at Italia ninety, I think they only had six uh, players playing overseas. They were all playing in France, and I think most of them were playing in the French second division at the time. Yeah. I'd yeah, love to know. You, I recall them. I'd love to know whether someone tried to sign Roger Miller after Italian 90, because mm. I, I know he was whatever age, but he was so good, so far ahead of anything basically else in the team. He would have done a brilliant job for any team in the world. I watched that England game a couple of years ago, and he's just, he's ridiculous. He basically plays what we now understand to be a false nine. He's just setting up so many things as well as being a threat himself. He could have played for any club in Serie A, I think, for for a year or two after that tournament. 
would have been a brilliant impact sub in any of the top European leagues, absolutely for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, there's probably a pod in this, especially if we get a guest who is uh, who's au fait with the subject on sort of African footballers and European leagues in the well, in the eighties. It would make I'll something ask Paul really Doyle. good. He knows yeah. loads about African football, so I'll, I'll ask him. Yeah, Philippe Auclair might know some stuff because of the French connection mm. as well, but um, I think that would make a great pod, but uh, as long as it's not me hosting it, because I don't know much about it at all. <laughs> uh, so we move to England, England, England. Now, um, having been as low as they've been in a, in a world... Cup uh, to as high as they've been in the World Cup, having dispatched Poland three 0 in order to qualify, and uh, up next are the uh, are the Paraguayans. And um, uh, no, I'm not going to say that because it could be construed as being uh, slightly dodgy. But they were they were seen as one of the smaller fries, shall we say, in the uh, in the knockout stages. Paraguay, not a country with a, a great um, history in in World Cups, um, so it, it looked a favourable draw for England, and and sure enough, in the uh, Estadio Azteca, uh, not quite as attractive a match for the Mexicans. Only ninety eight thousand turned up for this one, and um, two goals from Gary Lineker and one from Peter Beardsley uh, got us through three nil. Robert, uh, well, you'll probably remember this better than than we do but yeah not dissimilar to the Brazil-Poland game it was a game that became increasingly comfortable um, particularly once England went ahead it was fairly tight at the start Chilton had to make one pretty dramatic save um, but then England scored I think fairly close to half time Lineker and um, once that happened they were just kind of in control of the game and it's not a particularly memorable game really beyond the fact that yeah. um, Lineker obviously made it five in two games Um also got elbowed in the throat off the ball. Uh, so he was off the pitch, I think, when Beardsley scored. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, I know it was a very good win because Paraguay were quite a decent side. Um, they had uh, Romarito, who was arguably the best player in South America, certainly won uh, that award one year in the mid-'80s. But, um, yeah, just by, by the end, again, kind of... a an increasingly comfortable victory. First goal is often so important in these games between oh, a kind of an established yeah. side and a a good but side, but one that aren't kind of part of the aristocracy. I think if they go behind often, it's um, it has a quite a significant impact on their kind of morale and belief. And I get, I get the impression that's what happened here. Yeah, I mean, I I was about to uh, raise the the cliche of. The first goal being critical. It and, is though, uh, I think. I mean, you. Go I think on. it is. Right. I, I, yeah, I really do. Particularly in games like this. Mike. Yeah, just a, a quick point on Gary Lineker is that he could have had a second hat trick in a row here. So, as Rob says, he was off the pitch when Beardsley scored, and because he'd been uh, sort of elbowed in the throat, I think. Uh, as he was running through for a ball, sort of cynically checked off the ball, and it it cut to Jimmy Hill in uh, commentary. Who, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, who, who oh, I think said, "Oh, oh, Lineker fell deliberately by the South Americans." And yeah, South Americans, I thought, was a really interesting choice of word. It had kind of echoes of all South Americans of cheats, you yeah, know, the exactly. animals, the whole Alf Ramsey yeah. thing, and yeah. that kind of um, that kind of thinking. Uh, was still very prevalent then, and I think would play into the quarterfinal uh, that England would play, in which we will come to. But um, yeah, that's a bit of a different point. But uh, yeah, so Lineker was off the pitch, and then, so Beardsley took up his place in the six-yard box to uh, pick up any loose balls 
uh, that might come down. It was, I think it was a butcher header that was saved and then Beardsley taps it in from a couple of yards. So, um, yeah, I don't think anyone's ever scored two hat-tricks at a World Cup. So, you know, if Lineker had been on the pitch, um, he might have been the guy for that. But, uh, yeah, one other thing about England, Glenn Hoddle has a really good game uh, here. And I think 29 at this point. And it was a performance where you think, well, finally, finally he's going to start doing it for England, you know, when they really need him to. Um, so I, me- I remember that was something uh, that came out of it. And there are, I get what you mean about Paraguay not being one of the, uh, uh, you know, bigger nations from South America. But within this tournament, I think they were, you know, they played really well in the group stages. So they were a bit of a dangerous loose cannon, I think. Um you know, and uh, yeah, the first goal was huge and they nearly conceded it, England, uh, to Paraguay. I think you're right. Sometimes yeah. we could be a bit too down on England. So you get a game like that, and if they win it easily, it's oh, well, Paraguay weren't that good. Yeah. And of course, mm. if they lose it, we absolutely crucify them. So, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. I, I mean, I've made this point on a, a previous part, but um, it's probably uh, okay to raise it again now. Lineker was one of the hardest players I ever saw. And he wasn't hard because he went over the ball or because he uh, was the traditional kind of enforcer with reducers everywhere. He was he was a hard man because he just kept coming back. That He had almost total courage and um, would, never, would never be knocked down, um, never shirk a challenge. And a lot of his goals... Uh, are because he and he scored a lot from inside the box, or because he put mm. himself uh, where he knew that the challenge was coming in. He was going to get the ball first, and then he was going to get clattered. But he he did that over and over again, and his kind of physical resilience uh, was extremely strong. And you, you kind of feel for him a little bit when he got then pushed out on the wing for um, for Barcelona, because his game was all about being in where it hurts and 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 getting the job done. A little bit, a little bit like uh, Muller, not quite as obviously quick on the turn and not quite as prolific. But who was? But um, again, exactly where the 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 ball needed, to, uh, where he needed to be to to get the ball and the hell with the consequences. And also, you know, in an age where tackles from behind and and off the ball challenges were were de rigueur. Um, so uh, well done, mm, Gary Lineker. And we go to the uh, yeah, we go to I the last say, match. Uh, oh, go on. Oh no, oh, it's. Uh, it's... <laughs> a very quick uh, part we can cut this out if you want. But, um, at some point uh, I think it's after f- uh, about an hour uh, Gary Stevens um, oh yeah that's right not the Evan Gary Stevens so uh, so there's for a while, half an hour I'm going to have got two players called Gary Stevens on the pitch uh, which that's is right. you know a, a, a football minute by minute is uh, <laughs> absolute nightmare doesn't Motson call them Gary Stevens of Everton or Gary Stevens of Tottenham every time they're on the ball uh, yes, he does. Yeah, <laughs> very, very professional, Motty. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> there was a there was a Stevens, Stevens, Stephen, and Stephen Hodge on uh, there. So it's yeah. um, an almost kind of Sri Lankan uh, sort of uh, paucity of surnames, where they would always have uh, various the silvers in their uh, cricket team wasn't it but uh, but there we go you're absolutely right so we move to Denmark against Spain and the high mm. of Don't Denmark 6 Uruguay 1 <laughs> do is Gary. replaced just 10 days later dare I dare I Rob yes I'm going to have to do it to you Mike what you, happened? you can go first <laughs> uh, well, yeah, this is having your tiny eight-year-old heart snap like a twig. <laughs> um, 
effectively. Um, yeah, I mean, well, what do you say? I mean, Denmark were excellent in the first half. Uh, they took the lead through um, through a penalty from Jesper Olsen. Uh, it's his third game in a row where he scored his third goal of the tournament, and a lovely penalty as well. He just like sits down, Butcher Gray, uh, sorry, sits down Zubi Zareta and just rolls it to the other side of him. Um, so yeah, Denmark one up, had a kind of modicum of control, and um, then the very same Jesper Olsen, um, two minutes before half time, takes a short back pass from Lars Hoog out on the right, runs it up the line, and then tries to play it back to Hoog because he could still do a, a back pass in those days. Uh, it's a little bit wayward, and uh, Emilio Butchagreno jumps in and equalizes. Um, and yeah, an incredibly well f- deflating and famous moment uh, in the in the story of that Denmark team. So they went in a, um, at half time at one all. The popular perception of this, uh, something we try to address in the book, is that uh, that Denmark just simply collapsed immediately. Um, but that's not true actually. So after half time, Denmark had two excellent chances to retake the lead, both of which uh, fell to. Preben Alkjaer the first of which was when he went on one of his barnstorming runs I think he beats about three players and hammers a shot of Zubi Zareta which he saves Um, but Spain then they retake the lead completely against the run of play uh, from a corner where Butchagrano is unmarked at the back post Um, so Denmark are behind for the first time in the tournament having to chase the game uh, so Sepp Piontek, the manager, throws on another forward and Denmark start piling forwards and then it's at that point they start getting picked off on the break and it just results in an absolutely savage beating um, which I'll hand over to Rob to, <laughs> to, to, well, to just, take you just, just before you, you do, I think Butrigueno, I think his nickname was the Vulture and yes, I, that's I, I right. Yeah, Butre, so he rather picked... Yeah. Yeah, he rather picked over the carcass of the uh, of Denmark's hopes and indeed your your dreams. And you know, you went you weren't the only ones. You what's know, your, as a, what's as your a language neutral, there, Gary? <laughs> <laughs> as a neutral, you know, we all I think had Denmark as a as a second team. But Rob, yeah, there's not much to say really. What Mike said is spot on. They um they'd done a, a really similar change uh, about after about an hour of uh, a really pivotal Euro '84 game when they were two one down. Brought off a defender, brought on a forward, and it worked. The, the guy who came on, Kenneth Brüller, scored with his first touch within about two minutes. So they pretty much did the same change. Which so they moved to what was nominally a three-five-two, but actually they just overcommitted so much. It was almost three-one-six, and they were just leaving huge gaps. The, the back three had a combined age of about, I think it was over a hundred. Um, the Spanish front three had a combined age of about 67 or something like that. So basically they were just, they just unraveled really brutally. Um, and it was very sad. It was a shame for the tournament as with the USSR, um, because they were such a great team. Spain were their nemesis. They put them out of Euro 84. Um, and there was to say really, there was a lots of kind of, and there still is lots of discussion about why it happened. When you see a result as shocking as that, because um, I, I heard stories of people who got on the next day and were told to score and they kind of nodded sagely. Then they were told it was Spain who had won and were kind of like, what the, what the fuck? Um, and I think there are various interpretations. One is that the whole kind of Danish um, 
mindset was that you know you never get too far above your station and everything um and that they were satisfied to have won the group of death so emphatically that was you know that was enough that was their achievement and they wanted to get home um a lot of the players say they were absolutely shattered because training had been so intense i think there's probably it's hard to say without being there but i think there's probably a degree of truth in that and so that then when it got got really difficult in the uh second half and their legs are just gone, basically, and they were picked off. Though certainly the absence of Frank Arneson, who was sent off in the last group game, was certainly significant. He was a kind of a very calming influence and just a brilliant player. Um, I think the back pass is probably slightly overplayed, as Mike said. Um, it doesn't change the game hugely. Denmark are definitely the better team at the start of the second half. Um, and I think the second goal, which is just kind of a routine corner, that really changes the game. Um, well, I mean, obviously, it's still it's an iconic moment, and the poor guy Jesper Olsen had to bloody move to Australia to escape it. Um, <laughs> but I don't think it's as because I don't think it's as influential as is often made out. I think more than anything, it was just one of those very strange things that occasionally happen in football. I think there's a degree of fatigue, and definitely a degree of tactical anarchy, uh, and kind of losing their nerve a little bit and going too soon because they went to this ultra attack mode after about an hour, you know, they, they could have easily just played as they were, just keep passing and keep it like that till 80 minutes and see what happens. But they just threw everything uh, and risked everything with half an hour to go. And it backfired spectacularly. And um, yeah, and that was it. Gone. Um, is there, is there something, I mean, this is a, a philosophical question as much as a, a kind of football question, but is there such a thing as a kind of folk memory or a, a kind of accumulated knowledge that resides in teams, either at club level but especially at national level? And I'm, I'm I think looking it is, at yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm looking at Spain here, and you know, famously they had always underachieved, but that Spain team playing in '86 had been runners-up in the Euros in '84. Zubi Zaretta diving over the, that shot in the final, and um, they uh, so they they've been in '84 uh, there, and you know they they have obviously they had players in there who had won um, European cups and things like this, and played at the very highest level in in club football, and the Danes, you know that they're. they're their kind of freewheeling and their and their sort of breath of fresh air type approach to the game sort of came back to hit them. But is there is there something because you know, we all we, I think we all do laugh a little bit when Motson or somebody comes on and says Everton haven't won on this ground since 1973, and you're thinking, well, what difference does that make? They're all starting nil nil at 90 minutes, but so, but yeah, you look at matches like this and you, you just think that yeah, there just wasn't enough. Uh, in the in the kind of collective memory of Denmark to to be able to come up with the strategies that work when you you go behind to one of football's more leading powers, or is that just gobbledygook? I, I think it's possible. I think it's more a, a kind of just a historical thing about the entire country and the, its kind of place in the grand scheme. What I would say is that at Euro '84 they come from two 0 down when they needed to draw their final group yeah. game against Belgium, and they came from behind one three two. So I don't know that they didn't have the ability to do it. I just think they made a slight kind of instinctive misjudgment and went a bit too hard too soon. And and the combination of circumstances when you add in the uh, climate. The fatigue, which again we don't know, but I, I kind of from everything 
all the players we spoke to and everything, it makes sense. The age gap between the Spanish front three and the Danish back three, because they were so exposed. If you look at, I think it's the third goal comes from a penalty when Soren Busk is left alone with Butchogreno mm. and there's no one within 40 yards of them. That's it. It's just him. And basically he, he's knackered and he drags him down. It's a clear penalty. Um, so I think just a combination, as always with these things, there's no one reason is there. I think there's a combination yeah. of little things. Mm. I do think the Spain... I don't know whether the Spain hex had really kind of been established at that stage. I think it certainly was by the time Spain put them out of qualification for USA 94. I think by then it was absolutely a different group of players, but I think yeah. it was absolutely a factor in what happened then here. I, I don't know because it was quite, it was kind of a kind of burgeoning thing. It only happened once before, which was Euro 84 and it was on penalties. So I don't know. It's the yeah, show. I think it's, this, um, this, this group of uh, Danish players, I mean, if, if you look at what they did in their club careers yeah, as well, that's a good point. They won they're, they're a bunch of serial winners, basically. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I'd find it hard to, uh, you know, believe that they, they couldn't summon the collective will to kind of to stop this. But I just, I, I think, as Rob says, I, it's just, um, it's almost like a perfect storm of circumstances. Yes. Mm. Um, to get a beating, really. I mean, there's so yeah. many things that uh, play into it. Not least as well, Spain did play really well as well. And they, oh, yeah, they were absolutely very, clinical, weren't they? Yeah, on the break, um, after it's gone to 2-1, I mean, and that they you know, they know, they knew they had the numerical advantage and they knew they had the legs up front. Um, yeah, it was, it was really clinical the way they picked them off. And yet, you, know, you have to give them credit for that. So a, a question that obviously can't be answered it's conjecture no more than that but do do Denmark win the Euros in 92 um, partly because they lost this game because they were a much more pragmatic side in 92 weren't they? I don't possibly I don't think so personally I think it's just because they were a much inferior side in 92 as well so they cut their cloth the strengths were Mm. um, Schmeichel and they did actually have two very good forwards didn't Loudrum, Fleming, Paulson, but they were better on the counter-attack. I mean, yeah. Rickard Muller-Nielsen, who was manager in 92, was part of the squad in 86. He was, was he assistant, Mike? Was he assistant manager? Uh, yes, he was. He was so he'd have been there and experienced it all. I just think a completely different set of players. And yeah. it, actually, this is one thing I would say about um, this Danish team. It's often seen as the reverse of the 92 team ultra-attacking and so on. And the defence is often criticised. But I, I don't think they had a kind of a glass drawer. I think it's just that it was exposed. They just exposed it a lot. The three defenders, the three core defenders, Morton Olsen was a marvellous sweeper. Um, Soren Brusk was a very solid centre-half. And Ivan Nielsen was a brilliant player, like a beast of a man who was also very fast and could play. Ended up winning the European Cup at PSV. He was a fantastic player. So I don't think it was necessarily their weak link. I think it's just that they were so kind of innocent and naive that they left themselves exposed a lot. It's just the way they, they chose to play. And I think it's the reason they achieved so much and also why they were so popular. One thing I, th- I think is interesting, we spoke to Loudrup for the book, Michael Loudrup, and he said that a lot of the players think the one that got away wasn't Mexico, it was Euro 84. Um, and he, the way he phrased it was nice. He said uh, something like, because we would have had to play Maradona in the semi-final and we would have lost. He didn't say Argentina, which I thought was quite nice. Yes, um, well, uh, it's one of the, the 
the world's greatest ever kind of number 10s tipping the hat to yeah, the world's the greatest, greatest ever number yeah. 10. Uh, indeed. So we'll uh, on that lovely uh, anecdote, we'll move to the uh, quarterfinals. And it starts off with a, a clash of the titans, really, both of whom would have been very worthy winners, but one of whom uh, gets sent home, and that's Brazil against France. So you've got Socrates in one midfield and you've got Platini in the other. Wow. <laughs> What an absolute mm. delight. Um, the match finishes 1-1 uh, after extra time. And then we go to uh, what was then called the penalty competition, I think. Well, by uh, Barry Davis just... it was. That's one of the reasons mm. I always love Barry Davis, that he never called it a penalty shootout. He always called it a penalty competition. Um, always, Indeed, it sounds always... like something at the school fair, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, but you get... <laughs> it's slightly better than shootout. You know? It also sounds yeah. a bit X-factor, but anyway. It, it does a bit. So uh, who wants to lead us on Brazil against France? Go on, you uh, can take your pick. Fight for it. Um, I, I'm happy to go. Yeah, go, um, go on, Mike. Yeah, well, I think the greatest World Cup game I've ever seen, um, certainly in my uh, watching life. I like the point you made before, uh, Gary, about the uh, the French team in 82, 84 and 86. So this is the third great match the French can test. This, like this, they've got this triumvirate of great games. They had the 3-3 yeah. in the semi-final with West Germany in 1982. They had the semi-final of Euro 84 where they beat Portugal uh, 3-2 with that late goal by Platini and and this as well and I think seven of the players played in all three of those games and I don't know of a collection of international players that's been involved in this many classics um, other than France uh, and if we just go through the, the game um, the opening goal by Brazil, uh, the goal by Careca, I think is just such a brilliant goal, the way they drag the whole defence over to the right uh, to free him up. I, it's, I think it's the best goal in the tournament that isn't scored by Maradona. <laughs> um, uh, it kind of ebbed and flowed between the two. The quality of the play was outstanding. You know, He had shots going off the post and the bar. Uh, Zico comes on as a substitute and then has a, a penalty saved immediately by Joel Batts. Dominic Rochteau goes on a run that's almost Maradona-esque and nearly scores one of the goals of the tournament. There's controversy. Uh, Bruno Ballon is fouled as he goes through one-on-one with Carlos and it isn't given and that's got shades of Schumacher in 82. And then in the shootout, oh, sorry, the penalty competition (laughs) itself, um, Ballon's penalty goes in, it hits the post, goes in off the back of Carlos's head and it shouldn't have stood really, but it did. Uh, in In the... Penalties, Socrates and Platini both miss. Platini's birthday, wasn't and it? Then, and it's Platini's birthday, yeah, and he, he scored the equaliser as well. And then Luis Fernandez takes the winning penalty, and it's this great cathartic moment for the French, which avenges their defeat by the same mechanism in 1982. And it's, it's quite common to say with really great games, oh, it's a game that had everything. And, you know, no game has everything. But I think this game had more of everything than than I've ever seen, I think, certainly at international level. And it's between two just really, really brilliant high quality sides and it's there's so much drama and there's so many twists woven into it. It's just one of the most remarkable games of football I've I've ever seen in my life. Well, hair standing up on my uh, neck from that description, Mike. Absolutely fantastic. Rob, have you anything to add? No, no, not really. Uh, I would completely agree. Uh, uh, I would probably still place 
Italy three, Brazil two from eighty two above it. But I, you could you could argue either way. Really, the, the the purity of it, apart from that very cynical Carlos foul on uh, Bologna, the purity of the game is what really stands out. So many high quality midfield players. It was just a, it's just a beautiful game to watch. Uh, I agree with Mike about the first goal. I think that's really underrated. The way they, I think it's Muller Junior and finally Careca. The way they manipulate the ball in a really tight, almost phone box sized area to create space. It's just, it's just magnificent. It's such a good goal. Um, yeah, just a, just a wonderful game. I think, um, I think you're right. I think the fact France won on penalties was really, it was a huge thing at the time because uh, it felt like a, a catharsis, as you say. Um, and it was the end of a, an era of Brazilian football, really, because Tele Santana resigned the next day, I think. I think it was announced during England's game, actually. Um, and yes, by the well. time they got to the next World Cup, they were managed by uh, Sebastiano, Sebastiano Lazaro, I think. And they, you know, they introduced a sweeper system and um, kind of Joga Benito was becoming a thing of the past. So I think this was probably the last... Because people often say Brazilian football died in 82, and I'm not sure I agree with that because... 860 was pretty much the same. They weren't quite as good because they were older, but they were pretty much the same. Same manager, same philosophy, same way of playing. Um, but it's, things certainly changed after this game. Yeah, I think it was the kind of last hurrah of, of samba football meaning something rather than just being a kind An of An advertising cliche. slogan. Yeah. yeah, Jugo Benito and all that that kind of stuff. Of course, they still had some uh, great players to come through, most obviously uh, Ronaldo, who wasn't... Uh, who wasn't there yet? Who who played at times samba football? But Basically, this was a, they, the kind of whole team, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, they discovered. Say it was a, after this tournament. They discovered the defensive midfielder. Really, you think yeah, the, the yes. kind of symbol of the next two teams was Dunga, and you look at any Brazilian team. You look any pretty much every big team in Europe has at some stage in the last 10, 20 years had at least one Brazilian defensive midfielder. It's arguably the position where they produced the most players, um, and that certainly wasn't the case before. Uh, before 1990, yeah, I mean the 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 symbol up until then was was you know fullbacks like Junior yeah, who or were Socrates doing stepovers. Or, yeah. And, yeah, I mean they uh, still have, they still produce like brilliant fullbacks and and obviously great attacking players. But I do feel like the production on a defensive midfielders kind of symbolises the change the change in Brazilian football. Yeah. Uh, Platini's penalty just uh, again it's it's possibly the kind of thin air and the light balls and everything else but it's always the case when you hit a penalty over the bar it, it may only have gone over the bar by a matter mm. of sort of you know 12 inches or something but because it's on that path it looks like it's off to hit the international space station or something doesn't it because it <laughs> yeah. just goes miles and miles and miles um but you know he he'd scored earlier zico had missed his penalty um I'll tell you what it surprised else me how good bats was you know bats was really good in mm. goal wasn't yeah he, he was um, yeah. In, I'll tell you what else goes miles and miles after Platini's penalty so that makes it three all with one each to take and then Julio Cesar hits the post and it rebounds an absolute mile he absolutely leathers it he didn't place it did he he just (laughs) just (laughs) put his foot through the ball even that even that um, sorry even that penalty competition if you just look at the dramatic twist that take place just, just in that so you have two you know Socrates he tries to replicate that Poland penalty, which Bats obviously must have seen, and then saves it. And then you have the whole thing with Bologna, and it should, you know, it shouldn't have counted. Platini then puts that one over the bar, then the one off the bar. It's just 
you know, it, even that has got so it goes in so many different directions that shootout, and yeah, and you have the story of all these, you know, great players who are you know fallible in these like really um really important moments. It's um it you know that you could you could write a book on that shootout itself. I was I was thinking a good I like you can't measure great sport, but a quite a good way of doing it is give a rating for drama, intensity and quality. And I, I think you yeah. could argue this game has 10 out of 10 for all three. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that's very, very good. Rob, the, the only thing I would add to finish off on, on this before we go to a rather contrasting game coming up next, but um, <laughs> your point about the catharsis from uh, Luis Fernandez, uh, yeah. when he scores that goal, it's almost like a Tardelli run. He doesn't yeah, go to is. the camera, yeah. but it's, it's of that kind of emotional... Um, uh, release that we that we see, you know, it's 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 very Latin, but it's very understandable. And it, it again, it's uh, if you're going to finish a match uh, with a moment, if you're going to have a full stop, that's uh, and it's a great match. That is a great full stop to that match. Fernandez mm-hmm. running away in celebration, uh, fantastic, gentlemen. We'll move to uh, West Germany nil, Mexico nil. Um, Rob, you can start us with this one. <laughs> No thanks. Um, no thanks. Yes. Yeah. In Monterrey, uh, you know the the hosts playing in a in a provincial town really with a attendance of only forty one thousand. It does seem a little strange they weren't in the Azteca. Uh, I don't know a huge amount about this game beyond that there weren't that many chances. Tony Schumacher made some good saves. He was the kind of I'm loath to use the word hero to describe him, especially given what happened eighty two. But he was probably the most influential player. Uh, Germany had at that tournament didn't concede a goal in the knockouts oh, certainly in getting to the final anyway didn't concede a goal in the knockout stages up to the final uh, Sanchez had another poor game he quietly had a very disappointing tournament uh, and then it went to penalties um, and Schumacher again Mexico made a bit of a mess of theirs and that was it nil-nil tennis side uh, and penalties yeah not much to talk about yeah, it's worth uh, mentioning. So, um, oh, I should correct something I said in the previous pod. Actually, was that I, I thought Hugo Sanchez was suspended for this game. He wasn't. He was suspended for the final group game. But oh, uh, okay. That's what happens when you don't do any research. <laughs> but, I'm afraid. But uh, uh, yeah, for this, so Thomas Berthold was sent off. Uh, Thomas Berthold, famously involved in the air, the Gascoigne uh, yellow card four years later, he was sent off for throwing a punch after 65 minutes so for the final 25 minutes of the game or in normal time anyway Mexico they're at home they've got West Germany down to 10 men and they've got 25 minutes to put them away I mean you you don't get a better look at beating West Germany in that era than that and they just couldn't take it they were all over um, West Germany at the very end of that game and uh, there's one save by Schumacher from Aguirre uh, from a volley that I think was voted the save of the tournament, where he he somehow manages to tip it over the bar. It's a brilliant save, and then Aguirre get uh, later gets sent off in extra time, so that yeah, evens so it that's... up. And yeah, so that Go goes on. to pe- uh, sorry, so that that takes it to penalties. And the, 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 I think there's the temptation to look back at it now and say, oh, we all know what happens when it it's West Germany, but that wasn't the way it was thought of then, because West Germany's record at the time was one one lost one in international tournaments. So they didn't have this boogeyman reputation from the penalty spot, um, you know, that they have uh, now. 
So it, it wasn't, when it went to penalties, it wasn't a foregone conclusion um, like people think it is now that um, the Germans were going to win. Yeah, um, I, I noticed the uh, sending off of Aguirre and the, the referee's name was Jesus uh, Diaz, so I couldn't help but say that Aguirre has incurred the wrath of Jesus uh, <laughs> getting a second yellow in extra time. That's your Werner Herzog joke for the week. Um, uh, one of the things that struck me about the penalties here is that um, is that there isn't this kind of cliched all sort of linking arms and sort of standing together like you're the world's greatest British Bulldogs team that they go in for today. They're all kind of mixed in together around the centre circle, you know, some swigging Gatorade or something and others picking their noses or whatever they might be, be going through. But they're all kind of sort of sitting around uh, waiting to be called. And, you know, notwithstanding your absolutely correct point, uh, Mike, that the... Uh, that the the veneer of in, invincibility that attaches itself to Germans in in penalty competitions had not yet come to pass. But if I was a Mexican and I'm sitting down there looking at, in the centre circle, I'm looking around, and I see Klaus Alofs, I see Andy Bremer, Lothar Mateus, and Pierre Litbarski, um, who all scored their penalties. I'm thinking, God, we can't afford to miss very many here with the with these lads mm. around. So, yeah, I think. Um, I think that uh, that the Mexicans only Negrete scored; the other two were were missed. And you know, I think I think you're right. We can sort of trace the uh, the the invulnerability. I think at one point hadn't Germans scored forty nine of fifty penalties in penalty shootouts mm. or penalty competitions? It's just crazy. Maybe that was Matthew Letizia's uh, <laughs> conversion rate, <laughs> but it was something like that. So we move to the one, next match. Just one um, not quick, much. Oh, go on. One go quick, on. No, no, just one quick bit of trivia. You talk about Andy Bremer. So he scores his penalty in the comp- penalty competition with his left foot. And then in Italian 90 in the final, he scores a penalty yeah. with his right foot. Now that's what I call yeah. two-footed. Yeah, he and Johnny Wilkinson, eh? <laughs> uh, and Bobby Zamora has done it in the Premier League, believe it or not. Has he? Yeah, we had this question once. Name, name the players who've scored penalties with both feet in the Premier League. And I'm pretty sure... Two of them were Yakuba and Zamora, and it might have been a third, I don't know. But anyway, yeah. yeah. So, uh, when you're sat in Rosette and the ball hits your head, that's <laughs> Zamora. So, that's that's not actually true. So, uh, well, there, <laughs> there you go. Yakubu, um, when he was warming up at Goodison, uh, he used to kick the ball so bloody hard. I was worried about him breaking the goalkeeper's fingers. Um, you know, we've run into about seven yards outside the goal and then hammer the ball at the keeper. But um, there you go, Yakubu. Uh, 100 goals in the Premier League, I think, for Yakubu. Um, so we move to the next match. I think we can pretty much skate over that and then go to Spain <laughs> against... Oh, no, no, we better do. We better do Argentina versus England. I can't quite remember what happened in it. So you'll have to remind me, gentlemen. Rob, you can start on this one. God, where do you start? Well, we obviously know the story in the hand of God. Um, Maradona, uh, as someone put it nicely on our Twitter feed, actually, he's kind of the ultimate thing. He stabbed England first in the back and then in the front in the space of about five minutes. Uh, Then England scored fairly late through Gary Lineker, who then almost equalised when there was a, a quite extraordinary clearance off the line. Um, God, I don't know where to start. I mean, one thing that people often forget is, obviously, uh, with all the talk about uh, the hand of God, is that Terry Fennick could have been sent off, like, genuinely three or four times. So it wasn't a complete injustice. I mean, Fennick was booked early on for butchering Maradona after about, I don't know, first 10 minutes, typical kind of 
old school reducer and all that crap. And then he basically, it's near half time, he elbows him off the ball and throat. Um, yeah. Funnily enough, Jimmy Hill wasn't quite so critical of Terry Fennick when he did that. Never mind, <laughs> never mind all the Europeans. Um, yeah, so I don't necessarily buy into this whole huge injustice in that sense. Um, but I think. The, that that five minute period kind of sums up the greatness of Maradona because it's beyond, it's not just his football genius it's his whole personality it's his um, him against the world and the, the kind of lengths he would go to to win a game just find him utterly compelling and yeah it's, it's kind of the ultimate period of football in many ways. Well, I, one other thing actually is that England um, I mean, England didn't play terribly. It was quite a, I mean, the first half was pretty terrible to be honest. Not much happened. Um, and they improved, then obviously two quick goals and they're in all sorts of trouble. They improved enormously when John Barnes came on. He made the goal yeah. and made the other chance. And I think there was a bit of regret that perhaps he didn't come on earlier. Um, but yeah, there you go. Kind of, it, it actually, the funny thing is, it wasn't actually a particularly good game. It's just, um, just had a five minutes within it that are kind of arguably the most significant in football history. Uh, just before I come to you, Mike, um, I do want to pose a question actually to to both of you, and I think we've we've covered it before, but we'll we'll go back to it. Something I've always felt is if England do get an equaliser and then do win in extra time or penalties, or Maradona turns an ankle, does a Glenn McGrath stands on the ball or something like that, then um, I think England beat Belgium in the semi final, and I think they beat West Germany in the final because they're better teams than both of those. They are. Or the only thing is, obviously, the what we were talking about earlier—the kind of mental block with West Germany. Yeah. But I agree. I think mm. I, I think they had a yeah, absolutely a great chance of winning it. Belgium weren't a particularly strong side. England had a reasonable amount of momentum. Obviously, they had Lineker and Beardsley playing really well. Um, so yeah, I th- I agree. I think that um, they would have had a really decent chance. Yeah. Mike. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, if. if- if England had equalised in the last minute, I mean they still have to then win in extra time or on penalties, and they they were outplayed in that game. They were, you know, Argentina were the better team. So, yeah, um, I know I know that would have given England a certain amount of momentum. But even when it went to two one, I think uh, Tapia hit the inside of the post for yes, Argentina, that's right. um, and you know could have put it out of sight. And and obviously there's the the one guy on the pitch. I mean we'll come to him in a minute who just you know can take the other 21 completely out of the equation on his own. Um, I think that for this game, I would just, I think we need to talk a little bit about the, uh, what was overhanging it going in. I mean, obviously you had the, the Falklands war had been four years uh, previously to this and that diplomatic relations hadn't been resumed between uh, the UK and Argentina since then. I mean, everyone tried to play it down beforehand. Uh, Maradona, Bilardo, Bobby Robson, you know, it's just a football match. But, you know, a lot of them have come out since and said, you know, of course, how how could it not be in the thoughts and minds of the, everyone that was involved? Um, so that was one thing. But um, the other side of it is uh, a, a kind of footballing clash between the two countries had been brewing for a long time as well. I mean, this this goes back to... The 1966 World Cup, uh, the famous clash between England and Argentina when Rattan got sent off. Alf Ramsey used the term "animals," uh, which you know obviously went down well, quite rightly went down very badly uh, in Argentina. Then you had a couple of years after that, you had a very fractious meeting between 
um, oh, it's, it's uh, United and what was Bilardo's club? I can't. Um, oh, is it Estudiantes? Estudiantes, sorry, I, I couldn't remember. Was, um, yeah. yeah, in which I think um, your players got sent off and it was quite violent. Um, there's a match between England and Argentina in 1977 in Argentina where uh, Trevor Cherry and Daniel Bertoni got sent off for fighting each other. Um, so you had this uh, kind of rising, you had the off-the-pitch stuff and the on-the-pitch stuff as well. It was a clash of two football cultures as well as two football teams, really. I mean, in Argentina, their kind of gamesmanship, I think they call it Viveza Criola, about um, you know how can you... It's this kind of stylish way of circumventing the rules. Mm. Um, so that's, that's one way to play to the limits of the game. But... Um, you know, England play to the limits of the game as well. The whole culture of, you know, reducers, uh, putting a marker down, you know, that kind of barely contained uh, on the edge of the law's violence. And, yeah, it was, it was just a clash between those two things, really. And obviously, because England come down on the wrong side of this game, they lose 2-1. They, well, some people, uh, some England fans, take the moral high ground about being robbed and, you know, losing to the hand of God goal. And all right, fair enough, it was illegal, but you know it's also illegal to target the opposition's best player, you know, with, with a series of uh, you know brutal fouls. Like that's not in the laws either. Um, sorry, Gary, gone. Well, so one of the the things about the hand of God goal is, I mean, you saw that pretty much every week in league football. I mean, everybody would do it. Punching the ball into the net was. Uh, happened all the time. Everybody had a bit of a laugh and a joke about it. It was, uh, it was. Uh, if you got caught, it was all a bit of a a, a chance yeah. for giggles. There was no uh, mandatory yellow card. Um, say everybody knew it was one of the things. If you get away with it, you know, you, you go away. Everybody's outraged, but if you don't get away with it, everybody laughs. It was, and you know, had Maradona been pulled up there for the. the pretty obvious uh, handball I don't think no anybody would have uh, thought thought of it there would inevitably have been you know cheating RGs and all that kind of stuff coming through but it was just just what was done in those days and you know the game is better that that kind of uh, approaches uh, attracts greater sanction these days but in but then in the 80s it, it didn't um, well I think the, it was the... um sorry I was just gonna say I think it uh, because of the the game, the two teams involved, the backdrop. It's, it's. I think it's obviously become a bigger thing because of that. Um, and also, uh, people often blame Peter Shilton for this, for not out jumping Maradona, which I've always found a bit harsh because got Shilton's jumping for the ball in, you know, in the with the idea of I'll get to it before Maradona gets his head to it, and yeah. he would have done, you know, if Maradona yeah. had tried to head it. But it's a quite ingenious. Uh, <laughs> way around it by Maradona just to do this dainty flip with his fist. It's actually really subtle, isn't it? makes it look like it? a header. Yeah, it is, it, yeah. The fact his, head, uh... his head, hat, fist is so tight to his head, it's actually incredibly skillful bit of cheating. Yeah. yeah. And well, also, not... uh, go on. Sorry, go, sorry, go on, Gary. I was going to say, well, what's not subtle is as he runs towards the uh, the touchline, turning around and looking at the referee. Thinking, yeah. Surely they've noticed it. Surely. Well, oh no, they haven't. <laughs> well, he um he beckoned the the other Argentina players over with him to celebrate to like make it look more <laughs> convincing. And this this is another aspect of the force of Maradona's personality. Really, it can affect yeah. even the officials because yeah. Uh, Dotchev, who was the Bulgarian linesman, Lineker has said since that he could see him kind of twitching 
and yeah. I'm not sure whether he could give it. Uh, the referee, uh, Benico, wasn't really... I think there were players between him and the, the direct eye line of the ball, so he couldn't see it. So he was looking at the linesman. The linesman was looking at him. There was this breakdown in communication between them. Dotchev always claims that... Um, Benneke had said before the game that I'm going to make all the decisions, so don't worry, you don't have to do anything. And Benneke has um, thrown a, you know Dotchev under the bus and said, I couldn't see it, it should have been the linesman's fault. And I don't think either of them ever were ever involved in a high-profile game again after this. Um, so it's just this, once the moment's gone, I mean, obviously you had no VAR then or anything like that. And it, it even took, you know, the telev- several television replays before Barry Davis and Jimmy Hill and you know other commentators all around the world knew what had happened. That's how you know. So even even in a televised game, like Maradona managed to hoodwink the world for a couple yeah. of minutes that yeah. that he'd headed the ball in. I mean, I just I just it's a kind of all right. It's it's outside of the rules, but it's quite an ingenious bit of, <laughs> <laughs> bit, of uh, bit of cheating. I mean, I, I'm trying to remember my reaction watching it in the the living room just down the hallway there and i'm pretty sure my reaction was and i think a lot of people were like this that didn't look right it did happen very very quickly but it just mm-hmm. didn't look right you knew something had happened and you were kind of thinking as shilton knocked this back with his own hand or as but it it, it definitely wasn't a header but you couldn't tell it was mm-hmm. handball it was just it, it, it just looked wrong, you know, years of, of, of watching football. You, there's a natural rhythm to challenges and to how the, the ball falls between players. And that looked all wrong. And, of course, as soon as they go to the freeze frame and the, the famous photographs, then it's obvious why it was, was wrong. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's one other point I would make. And I haven't read uh, Jonathan Wilson's book on the history of Argentinian football, but... I have read some some other stuff about Argentina, and as I understand it, and I'm sure I'll be corrected on Twitter, and rightly so if I've got this wrong, is that Argentina is one of the least Latin of Latin American countries, in that there was a, a big Welsh influence in Argentina, a big British influence in culture and in administration, and... Before, I think, the Second World War, Argentina, with its tremendous natural resources in terms of agriculture and lots of other stuff, was, was actually you know, quite a wealthy country. And, um, you know, the, the British influence out there was, was quite strong, although it was never obviously part of the, uh, the British Empire. And it's kind of, you kind of think it's not just Los Malvinas or the Falklands. It's kind of a whole swirling shared history, which is stronger i think between uh, the british isles and argentina despite being on other sides of the globe than it would be between england and brazil or paraguay or or any of those other countries and i think i think a lot of that was playing into it i mean obviously you've got teams in argentina or it's it's chile called everton i think but there are lots of of argentine football teams who trace their roots back to uh, to england so there was a, there was a lot going on and um, as a match, obviously, it remains uh, completely unforgettable. So it's um, adios to uh, England. Uh, Argentina progress, and we go to um, the. Uh, oh, go on. Sorry, Garrett. Um, are we going to are we going to talk about his second goal? For, yeah, I mean, we <laughs> can. I mean, is there anything new to say really, um, other than the fact that you know he, he, he's so one-footed, he'd never get get in <laughs> these days. Go on, gentlemen. 
Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, nothing fantastically new to say about it, I suppose, but it definitely warrants uh, a bit of a mention. Um, yeah, go it's, on. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, certainly, I think when you weigh everything in the scales, you know, context, uh, you know, occasion, and uh, the actual quality to the goal, it's, it's yeah, it's the best goal I've ever seen, um, hands down, I think. And uh, there's a lot of like, myths about it now. They, um, I think it's just the other day, say, oh, he just runs in a straight line, which uh, <laughs> is wrong because he starts off, he's facing away from his own goal when he receives the ball. And then he spins out and he goes out to the um, out to the right to the wing. Then he cuts back in, uh, beats Butcher, beats Fennec with a brilliant touch because Fennec knows he can't foul him because he's already been booked and he's not sure whether he's in the area. And then, uh, yeah, sits down Peter Shilton and then pokes it in. And what, one thing I've always loved about the goal, actually, is that it's the way the Azteca can sense that something pretty amazing is unfolding. Because if you, if you listen back to the, the original um, footage of it now, for every player Maradona goes past, it's almost like the crowd goes up an octave. <laughs> um, and uh, and eventually, after he t- uh, pokes the ball into the net, it's just this uh, explodes into this uh, crescendo. It's um, and I love that realization within the crowd that um, you know so- something absolutely magical is happening here. You, and you can strangely, you actually get that on TV as well. One thing I've always loved about that goal is. The way that it's a really tight shot at first when he beats Reed, Reed and Beardsley, and it suddenly mm. pulls back, and it's at that moment you realise like how fucked England are basically, how much how in trouble there because before that it's just really tight, he's just beating people individually, then suddenly it pulls back, he beats Fennec, and which you're right, that's a brilliant touch because it's so quick, he takes it so early, Fennec kind of takes him out of the game before Fennec even knows he's in it. Um, and then beat Shilton and so on. But yeah, I love the way it just suddenly, it's like a whisking the curtain away and you realise how, how naked England are. Yeah, um, my dad uh, made a, a pithy remark uh, about the goal. He said, uh, never saw anybody run away from Peter Reid. Maradona did. <laughs> Doesn't you Peter Reid still dream uh, about it? It's, it's that good. Doesn't he still dream about it? Can I read that? <laughs> that he's chasing him. Maybe I imagine uh, I think, that he's... Like, yeah, chasing. he does. Yeah. yeah I think it, I th- I think it's in one, it's of, one the of those clips you know those Howard's way, yeah, nightmare dreams. Peter Reed, clips, maybe. Peter Reed's great, yeah. isn't he? Mm. Yeah, <laughs> he's done. He's, he's had a good. Uh, yeah, he's had a he's had a good few weeks. I think mm. uh, as Peter Reed, while well, we're we're all suffering, but um, yeah, um, I don't think it's the best goal I've ever seen because he scores that in the next match. But we'll come, <laughs> we'll come to that uh, semi final. <laughs> In a moment. Uh, but uh, the team that would face uh, Maradona and Argentina, and I think it's fair to put them in that order, um, is uh, would be the winners of Spain against uh, Belgium. And um, this is the third of the four semifinals that goes to penalties after a 1-1. Uh, Rob, do you want to kick us off on this one? Yes. Um, an OK game. Kerlman's who uh, Mike was talking about earlier, who I agree, was a very underrated player, scored a nice header in the first half. Um, Spain were five minutes from going out when they scored quite an unusual goal, actually. A corner was dragged all the way back to outside the box. Loaded defenders charge out, and then Senor just belts it in. A slightly, slightly strange goal, but anyway. Uh, yeah, match goes to penalties. Eloy, I think, is the only player who missed. Uh, Belgium won yeah. 5-4. Um, again, I don't, remember a huge amount about the game beyond that i think um 
partly because I guess we were also distracted by what had gone on earlier in the day with Argentina England. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, Belgium. I mean, Belgium. I still don't think they're a great side. Certainly not comparable to the um, twenty eighteen team. Um, but reaching the semis of the World Cup is obviously a huge, a huge thing. Yes, I mean, Eloy uh, was the only one to miss a penalty, and his name is um, the same as the uh, as the uh, group of human beings who live above ground in the time machine. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, maybe he was uh, his mistake was being harvested by the Morlocks of uh, of Belgium uh, to allow them to uh, to progress. But Mike, uh, yeah, not a lot to add. Uh, Jean Marie Faf, the Belgian uh, goalkeeper, has a has a a really great game um, in this match. Apart from the, um, apart from on the goal, actually, it's kind of it goes straight down the middle of the goal. Um, but I think he was a bit unsighted with it. Um, and yeah, this is Spain going out in the quarterfinals, which is a bit of a roadblock for them at the World Cup. Apart from winning in 2010 uh, with that great side they had, they've, they've never progressed uh, past the quarterfinals. I don't think at the World Cup. Um, so this this was uh, kind of familiar territory for them, but um, yeah, very tight game. Um, uh, Belgium did well to get through, and then uh, yeah, onto the quarterfinals to face Argentina. Yeah, I mean the the feeling I got from this match, I've no recollection of it whatsoever, and it is because of the you know the come down of the enormous sort of epoch making uh, game that had gone before. Is that Brazil versus France? Um, Germany versus uh, West Germany versus Mexico, Argentina versus England. Any of those six teams, you can make a case to win the tournament. It was pretty hard, I think, to make a case for either Spain or Belgium to win the tournament. So you know, these these two looked like they were going to go through to be the uh, whipping boys of the semi-finals. Um, but of course, you know, it's it's never quite like that because you're only ever sort of 90 minutes away from a one-off game to win the World Cup. But it did feel like this was the the weakest of the four quarterfinals. And I mean, I think I think we, we probably all watched it, but we watched it in a state of kind of glazed shock at, uh, at both goals that England had gone out to and, you know, pining for, for John Barnes to have come on 15 minutes earlier. But uh, but there we go. We go, we go through to uh, two semi-finals, um, three European teams in South American semi-finals. And the first one was in Guadalajara. And um, it's France nil, West Germany two, which I think um, broke a few hearts. And Germany's goals coming early and late. Yeah, it's worth saying, I think I'm right in saying this is the last time the semi-finals were played on the same day. Um, subsequently, yes, they were yeah, split to Tuesday and Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was, there was a there was a huge sadness in France losing. But it was a, quite a cruel thing as well, because the first goal was a mistake from Bats. Uh, Brahm a free kick that just went through him. Uh, he had obviously been one of the heroes against Brazil. Um, and yeah, just, just, it was just a typical German win, really. France had chances. I think Bossis missed a great chance. France, um, France dominated possession, but West Germany looked, you know, were happy just to sit in and do what they needed to do. And then right at the end, basically the goal at the end was just a, France had almost down tools because one last attack had failed and they throw the ball straight up field and there's no one there. Volod knocks it over bats. Um, yeah, it was just a very deflating experience, I think, for 
the majority of world football. Um, mm. Wasn't a huge amount in it, you know. Like it, it was, there wasn't a patch under three all game in eighty two. It was just it was a classic example, really, of a, a team who know how to defend, scoring an early goal and yeah. kind of yeah. protecting that, riding there like a little bit at times. But France ran out of gas a little bit as well. They were they were. They weren't as over the hill as Italy, but they were slightly past the best. Gires never played again after this tournament. Yeah. Platini, I think, had tendonitis, I think. Rosto, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure Rosto missed this game through injury. Um, yeah, he did. Yeah. So they would have missed him. And it just, yeah, it was just I, I, not a huge amount in it at all. Semi-finals are like that, aren't they? You know, first goal important, but also little moments could go either way. You know, had France equalised, then you'd probably fancy them to go through, but... I think the longer the game went on, there was a kind of sense of inevitability that Germany were going to do them again. Yeah, I just wonder, I'm sure somebody will come back on Twitter and and give me examples of it, but I wonder how many times West Germany, as they were in Germany today, have um, got to 90 minutes with the opposition having failed to score against them and not won either in the 90 minutes in extra time or on penalties. In other words, if you don't score in 90 minutes against Germany in the uh, in the uh, in a finals tournament, whether that's World Cup or Euros, you're not going to win, are you? You're not going to progress. Mm. You're not going to beat them in extra time. You're not going to beat them on penalties. And you know, once that first goal went in from Bremer, it, the obligation was very much on France to score. And they and they, despite all the firepower that they had, and as you say, the possession. And the flair and the everything else, it, 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 it did seem a, a match too far. I wonder My, also how much the oh, emotion yeah. of the Brazil game took out of them as yeah. well, and, uh, yeah. both physically and mentally. I mean, I know Germany went to extra time as well, but I, I suspect that, that Brazil game was such a kind of grand occasion as well. It must have taken a lot out of them. Anyway, Mike. Yeah, well, this is uh, it's another game with with history hanging over it, really, so... I think there's five players on each side that played in the 82 semi-final. And obviously there's a burning sense of injustice in the French because of, um, you know, losing on penalties and, you know, what happened with uh, Schumacher. Um, I thought watching this back that it felt like, maybe I'm just imposing this on it, but uh, France seemed to want it a bit too badly. Um, The revenge, they were snatching at their chances. Uh, there's a kind of horrible irony in the, the, the final two chances of the game, which are in injury time. One falls to Patrick Battiston, who'd been clattered by uh, Schumacher, and the other falls to Maxime Bossis, who'd missed the sudden death penalty yeah. uh, in the shootout. And so that's like revenge on a plate for them both, and they couldn't um, they couldn't take it to you know take the game into extra time. And Schumacher saved them both. And as Schumacher's on the floor holding the ball for Bossis, <laughs> yeah. the second one, Platini aims a little mock. <laughs> Uh, kick at his head as he walks past him. Uh, I think he knew that the game was up at that point. And at that, I think yeah. there's um, nine French players in the German box at that point. And Schumacher just hurls the ball at fields and West Germany break and Vola scores. Um, and that's it, really. Uh, but, yeah, I think I think you make a really good point about the Brazil game. I mean, it almost feels like a bit of a Pyrrhic victory. You know, it takes so much out of you mm. to to win a game that's that drenched in, you know, drama and emotion. I mean, apart, quite apart from the physical exertion of going to extra time, what that must do to your nerves and your, you know, your your emotional state to recover four days later to play in a World Cup semi-final, that must be really difficult. 
Yeah, agreed. Yeah, so that's uh, West Germany um, by hook or, or by crook yet again uh, getting through to a, a, a final. Um, not a great German side by any means, but there have been poorer sides than that got through to international finals. And then uh, Argentina against uh, Belgium, um, 2-0 to Argentina. And uh, what I think was an even greater goal than the goal he scored against uh, England, Maradona, with both of them. Uh, Mike, do you want to kick us off with this one? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's... So Mar- Maradona goes into this game with a global controversy raging around him, um, which obviously, as we as we find out in this game, uh, didn't bother him at all. Um, <laughs> and obviously at this moment, he's done the lovely little knife twist on England of uh, claiming divine retribution by yes. saying the goal was part the hand of God, part the head of Diego Maradona. <laughs> um, but he's... I mean, he's just absurd in this game. Uh, he could have scored a hat-trick quite easily. He sets up another couple of great open goal chances for his teammates that they miss. He scores both the goals. The first one, I think, actually is really underrated as yeah, well. Agreed. Yeah, agreed. It's a lovely little sharp dart into the box, and he dinks it with the outside of his foot over Faf. Um, I don't agree with you, I'm afraid, on the his second goal being better than his England goal. To me, that's like a radio edit uh, single <laughs> version. Um, although it's it's, I mean, it's still, it's an absolutely brilliant goal. Um, and it, it's the economy of it. It's in a, a tighter space. Um, the balance is going past the, balance the balance and the, the, the finish. Um, you know what I, I love think, about I think... it? I, I, what I love about it, Mike, is, and I include this as part of the goal, is the celebration mm. where yes. he's half falling over yeah, he still all keeps the time. His yeah. But he still keeps his balance. And he keeps inside the pitch as well. And I think yeah. he keeps inside the pitch just because, you know, I can do. And it really sort of puts puts him in this kind of outrageous plateau of of physical gifts yeah. that um that balance is always a joy in all sports and in, indeed in all mm. art and culture i know i've talked about this before when you see uh, a person blessed with balance and he is the most balanced person i've ever seen albeit not in real life on on television <laughs> and you see that balance there both in the goal and then in the celebration you just sit back and you think wow oh, well you know what could you yeah. do what can you do I think at this point as well, I mean, on an individual level, he was operating at a kind of level that we've not seen at the World Cup before. And you're right about the balance. I mean, I, and I think, again, we have to mention the pitch as well, because this is, again, this yeah. is on the Azteca. An absolute dog of a pitch that was making fools out of some really good players. You know, he's bobbling over people's feet. So he's that much of a genius that he could adjust to that. And if you're talking about a, a ball hitting a bobble, it's a split-second adjustment to change your stride or to you know to change your mind about what you're going to do and it's you know on that goal and on the England goal you know he just never lost control of the ball at all it was never like getting stuck under his feet or anything like that I mean it's just what a brain what a football brain you know that you, that you can recalibrate to account for that pitch it's uh yeah it's incredible mm, I think that's a great point actually about his football brain um, and that, that even came into play with um, the goal against England because he'd missed a similar chance at Wembley. And was it 1980 they played yeah. there? When he'd beaten a few players and he slipped it past Shilton, but wide of the far post. Oh, apparently, yeah. Apparently even in that moment when he was going round Shilton or about to, he actually recalled that. I think his brother had said to him, why didn't you go round it? Or something like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, that's not that's right, yeah. And he recalled that and went, went round and went the other way. But yeah, I agree. I, the, the level of his skill and intelligence and influence... 
uh, the sharp end of a World Cup is just mind-boggling. I, I doubt we'll ever see it repeated. And I know people can talk about Messi and Ronaldo and longevity and everything, and that's fine. But to to win a World Cup almost on your own and then follow it up by winning Serie A for the first time in Napoli's history, I mean, the, there's a level of influence there that it's just... It is. It's mind-boggling, really, that he could be that good yeah. over a sustained period. Um, and he wins. Like he's I actually think this is his best performance. There's times in the second mm. half where it's just laughable. It really is. Yeah. There's a run he goes on after the second goal when he, he shoots wide. But you can see the Belgium trend is saying, what, the, what yeah. are we supposed to do? This is just ridiculous. Um, I think, um, yeah, sorry to interrupt, Rob. I think that John Motson says in the commentary at that point, oh, they don't know what to do, yeah. the Belgian defender. And he's, it's just, it's almost like you you know he's going to go past them before and he has them. This is at a time when defenders had still had the license to hoof people up in the air. Yeah. I think yeah. this is a huge, I mean, I know loads of people prefer Messi and so on, but I think the two big things, well, three, but two big reasons why I prefer Maradona's era are that. A, defenders could basically commit GBH and only get a yellow card. And B, the pitches are absolutely vile. Um, and when you then add his influence in winning World Cups and Serie A on his own, then I just think he's unmatched and probably always will be. Yeah, and I know oh, I'm an outlier when it comes to the uh, movie, but I think that that movie, it was interesting in lots of ways, but it should have made much more of, of that. I know it's not the main focus of it, but you watch the movie, and if you don't hear the the passion in which you're saying that, uh, Rob, and, and Mike agreeing and me agreeing, you, you, you don't get that. You just you, you get much more of a picture of, of someone who has his problems and who is idolised and everything else, but you, you, you don't get any sense of just how far ahead he was in the world's biggest sport the more people play it than anything else and he is he you know there are people that are in the same conversation but nobody's on the same step mm. you know it's just extraordinary it's interesting also that he always used um kind of injustices as fuel didn't he whether they were real injustices or perceived and it's interesting that even he could even use his own country as fuel to motivate himself because he was so bitter about 78 wasn't he about being yeah. left out and he would still talk about that you know they denied me the chance to win the world cup in my own country so even that even that he's even using his own country as a reason to you know prove a, prove the previous generation wrong by winning the world cup for argentina again it's just incredible his ability to to because also you, you don't necessarily associate anger with skill do you but his his ability to process anger and turn it into the most sublime skill as well. It's just incredible. Yeah, because normally that that just results in a red card. Doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, you, know, you just you, you just uh, it's you, interesting. You lose though, your rag and fly. Into you do see occasional examples. Do you remember that famous George Best goal in the NASL where he beats about eight players on the edge of the box? Well, that all came because oh, yeah. he was pissed off with the referee. Basically, he just he was literally having. A, it's a bit like Rooney's volley against Newcastle for Man United. Oh yeah. Although that's yeah. slightly different because that involves power. Whereas mm. Best and Maradona involves kind of weaving and skill, but yeah, he's basically having a row with the ref, and the ball comes to him, and he's ba- and then he just goes and beats everyone. But but generally, you don't do that. Generally, like anger leads to aggression. Um, for he, he, the ability he had to kind of process all that and to turn it into fuel to produce all the skill and everything is just ridiculous. Yeah. Like, well, just one of the incredible few... and the charisma as well. That's the other thing. Yeah. That's where I think mm. he's got a huge advantage over Messi is yeah. charisma and personality. And I know that's not important to everyone, like each to their own. Um, but he was just so compelling, as you said, Gary. And that's why actually 
part a huge part of his story is Italian ninety as well to drag that whole team kicking and screaming to the final when they were absolute crap basically yeah. and he was his yeah. one of his leg, ankles was the size of his bloody yeah. a balloon it just just yeah. amazing and the, and the, to set fire to your relationship yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just, in the just, oh it's just the most amazing story yeah. Uh, the, the the only other sports one of the few sportsmen I think stands comparison as an sight and and with the 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 balance and interestingly is another sportsman who was able to channel anger into sublime skills is is John McEnroe and it's a brilliant film That's French documentary about McEnroe but I often think of of Maradona and McEnroe. Um, they're often linked in my mind because the aesthetics of watching them um, play their sports, uh, there's a lot of comparisons there. Both were relatively um, small men in their in their uh, sports, but both were so far ahead of the rest when they were on the game that that you know that they that there, there is no comparison, and it it comes down to down to balance, giving you that that extra time as well as all those psychological uh, aspects and game craft and game intelligence and everything else but um Mar- when you were saying that about Maradona again I was I was thinking of McEnroe and there can't be there can't be many more because anger is almost always a block to clarity of thinking and it floods your body with the wrong kind of lactic acid or whatever it is there and yet these do you know these one who, handful are able to do it do you know one who could weirdly was Kevin Peterson yeah we yeah, often yeah. use slight but again perceived or actual to produce these kind of spine tinglingly brilliant innings um and again again that had the same kind of delicacy i always think the most remarkable cricket shot i've ever seen sorry this is a bit of a digression but it's in 149 at headingly against south africa in 2012 and he plays this dreamy slow motion pull off dale stain for four and you think where's and he's clearly at that point his relationship with the entire england dressing room is collapsing yeah he's basically batting against two teams south africa and england but he can still produce (laughs) such a kind of dreamy serene bit of skill it's remarkable Yes, anyway. so um, yeah, extraordinary stuff, and we do have a whole episode on Maradona. So if you think we've uh, not eulogised him enough, then you've got a whole kind of ninety minutes of eulogising uh, in one of our other Ness and Dorma pods that you'll find wherever you get your podcasts, as uh, they keep saying on the radio these days. So we go to the world's most inconsequential match, which is the third place playoff in um, Puebla. <laughs> Uh, and I thought uh, I'm looking at so many screens these these days. I I I read yesterday um, that uh, that uh, companies are struggling because they're failing uh, to because of uh, deceased demand and it was decreased demand. And I um, I saw here I, I looked at the referee and I thought I thought it was George Clooney was the referee, but it's not. It's George Courtney of England was the uh, referee. I don't know if you're going stare crazy with the screens, but I know I am. Um, but it is the world's most in- inconsequential match, but it offers some consolation to the uh, French who run out four-two uh, winners after extra time. Do any of us have any recollection of it? Do you know, the only thing I remember is it, it was the sitting board carnival that day. I don't know why I remember that, but I remember being on a float. I can't remember exactly why. Getting home and, no, not really caring about the game. Um, yeah, yeah, no, no. 
Somebody's going to tweet in and say, I was also at the City Bug Carnival. I do hope so. But, uh, Mike, what, what were you up to? I've got no recollection at all. Well, I don't remember what I was doing, but um, I was just going to make a point about the game, really. It just, it, it just seems like such a frivolous, I don't know, end-of-term, bring-your-games-in kind of party. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, really, I really don't know why they're... Um, Still persevering, but I think it's to do with uh, you know have to give medals out and stuff, don't you? Um, I mean, it might have like had that. something to do with qualification, did it? Because you know, we when we looked at the group stages last week, it was clear that um, if you wanted to get in pot one, you had to have a, a, a record at the previous World Cup, and I, I guess these days it might contribute to the coefficient. Mm. But it seems unnecessarily cruel to parade them a bit like um, they they did in Bullseye. Yeah. You know, here's what you could have won. Um, and have them out there, and then to, for them to play uh, extra time as well. I mean, surely yeah. you go two two and mm. you say shake hands, lads. You're both third. You know, like they well, do the, in the other, um, yeah, the other thing this often affects is it. This often affects the destination of the golden boot as well. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, which really doesn't seem fair on you know the the guys who've scored all their goals in meaningful games. You know, if someone can. Uh, sort themselves out the golden boot in this third place uh, playoff. I think Davos Suke yeah. did it in 98. Yeah. Um, oh, didn't Scalacci? Scalacci in 90. Scalacci did, yeah, 90. Uh, I think Juice Fontaine in 58 went from nine goals to 13 goals <laughs> by scoring four in the... Um, yeah. in the third place playoff. So it's a bit of a false economy in that, in that oh, sense, I is. think. But, um, and I don't think, I can't believe that any of the players want to be there. I know for some of them, they get the first game of the tournament and that's all very nice, but there's nothing on it really. Um, yeah, how, you, Owen, how you rouse yourself for that, I don't know. Yeah, I think Michael Owen would have enjoyed a goal in it, but I think pretty much everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> so we go to the final and it's Argentina against uh, West Germany. Um I remember sitting down watching this thinking, well, you know, how many are they going to win by? Um, but uh, in, in the back of your mind, you're saying, you know, you never write off the Germans. But um, but there we, there we are. It was Argentina 3, West Germany 2. It sounds like an absolute thriller, but the reality of it was somewhat different in my recollection. But gentlemen. Yeah, it was a strange, it was almost two games in one. So Argentina yeah. went 2 0 up, and you're right, it just looked like an absolute cruise. First goal was a mistake from Schumacher, which was a bit harsh given how good a tournament he'd had. Uh, Valdano scored quite a neat second. West Germany put Mateus to man Mark Maradona, um, which worked pretty well, but it, it meant that. Um, they almost took their own best player out of the game as well. It was a bit like 66 when Franz Beckenbauer marked Bob mm. Charlton. Um, but then, yeah, kind of drifting. But as always, Germany don't go quietly. They scored two goals from corners. Uh, 74th and 80 minutes, Rummenigge and Volo, almost identical goals. Um, and suddenly you think, geez, what's happening here? And the problem is that um, well, I think West Germany almost got carried away. They they were pushing for a winner and they were picked off. Maradona, who'd had a pretty quiet game, inevitably had an influence with a sensational first-time pass to put Burichaga through. It's a brilliant pass near the halfway line. Burichaga had an absolute age to think about it as he pushed it further and further towards the area. Schumacher kind of dithered a little bit um, and then he slipped it past. It was a really composed finish, although I do think there's one touch that's slightly heavy and I think Schumacher could have been out, but, you know, that's nitpicking a wee bit. Um, And yeah, that was it. It was kind of a double... um, a kind of 
double crossed by fate West Germany. So they were they ended up having a defeat far more painful than the original two to defeat would have been because of the comeback game, so much hope and everything, and such a high, and it was kind of whipped away from them straight away. So yeah, there you go. Yeah, Mike. Uh, yeah, the one kind of curiosity I wanted to mention before this game is that um, Maradona was invited down into the bowels of the Azteca where they uh, they unveiled a plaque for him for his uh, his goal against England. I think it was uh, entitled The Exquisite Individual Movement of This World Cup. Um, was it you know, the first he, or the he... second goal? <laughs> yeah, the second, yeah, the second goal. But um, um, yeah, that's quite you know when the guy's got a World Cup final on his mind, that's a it's a bit of a distraction for him. But um, yeah, Rob, Rob's point, he makes the point. Um, uh, Mateus and Mar- uh, Mark and Maradona. It, it's kind of like you know when you trade queens in chess. Yeah, exactly. You, know, you take them both out and you try to win it with the other pieces. And I do, I, I do think we should mention actually some of the other pieces that Argentina had because we mm. talked a lot about Maradona. So yeah, fair um, point. Jorge Burachaga had a superb tournament. Uh, he was like yeah. the attacking midfielder. Uh, Valdano scored four times. Uh, was playing for Real Madrid then as well. Jose Luis Brown, who came in to replace Passarella, he didn't have a club at that point uh, because his knees were in such a state that no one would sign him. And he only went to the World Cup as a backup, but he ended up starting all the games. And in the last 10 minutes of this game, he, oh. uh, dis- he dislocated his shoulder but bit a hole in his shirt, put his thumb through it uh, to kind of create a kind of uh, sling and played on for the last 10 minutes with a dislocated uh, shoulder. Uh, was he Was he the one who had kind of English grandparents? Or Scot- Scottish. Uh, no, he yeah. was uh, Scottish Irish, ancestor. I think. No, I thought it was Scottish, yeah. but anyway. Oh, was it Scottish? Oh, I, I don't know. Maybe not. But anyway, yeah, he certainly had um, ancestors. Yeah, so he filled in. And yeah, just a, a, a point on the German comeback is that the German, uh, I mean... It, this just seemed to happen every generation with West German teams. So in the 1954 final, they were two goals down and they came back to win 3-2. In Euro 76, they were 2-0 down. It was down a miracle of semif- Bern, was it? Miracle, miracle of Bern, of yeah. Bern? yeah. Yeah, so 1976, they were 2-0 down to Yugoslavia in the semi-final. Uh, sorry, Euro 76. They were 2-0 down to Yugoslavia in the semi-final, 1-4-2 in extra time. They were 2-0 down to Czechoslovakia in the final. They got it back to 2-0 in penalties. The 1982 semi-final, they were 3-1 down with 20 minutes left in extra time and got it to 3-all and got it to the penalties. And then they got this game back to 2-all as well with, you know, not exactly a vintage West German team. And you just think, what do you have to do to beat these guys? (laughs) Terminators. um, They're terminators. Yeah, they just keep going. Um, And also, I just wanted to quickly address one uh, thing that I think is a bit of a myth about this game is that Maradona wasn't involved at all. Um, he's actually he's involved in all three goals. Uh, so he wins the free kick that, Ar- that Jose Luis Brown scores from. He's involved in the move that puts Valdano away for the uh, for, what's it the second goal, and then he he's the one who gets free and prods the pass through to Burachaga for the winner. And he should have had a penalty in the last couple of minutes as well, which would have if he scored it would have put him level with Lineker for the golden boot. And Schumacher made a really great save from a free kick he took as well. So apart from making three goals, though, he didn't do. <laughs> yeah, much. but it's it's because they weren't direct assists. Yeah, so, like no. people only think in terms of goals and assists. Well, they kind of were though, yeah. two of them, weren't they? But yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I suppose it's just relative to what he'd done in the quarters and semis. But you're right; it's not like he was anonymous. Um, he just yeah. just had less of a, a spectacular mm. influence. 
Yeah, I mean, my memory of it is that expectations of Maradona were so high. You know, we were expecting him to sort of uh, hit the crossbar uh, and then volley in the return for, for uh, mm. three times for the hat trick. So expectations were impossibly high. My feeling was, and I haven't seen the whole game back by any means, but my memory is that he was slightly low on energy, which meant in some ways those surging runs weren't quite as um, penetrating. They were starting from deeper because, you know, Mateus was in and around him. And, you know, the Germans did a did a job on him for, for sure. And not many people uh, have ever done that. And we should give them credit. But it, it did look a little bit like um, he was more of a, a kind of human rather than a superhuman. And I think the mental and the physical uh, strain of the previous few weeks caught up with him a little bit. Having said that, you know, he was absolutely fantastic, but he was absolutely fantastic on a plane that we're used to seeing players play absolutely fantastic, not on a completely separate plane. And, you know, the, the, the pass is a, is a glorious pass at a critical time for, for the goal that won the, uh, that won the final. So, you know, um, we shouldn't be, uh, as we're not, we shouldn't be downplaying this. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, we were all expecting him to, you know, jump through yet more uh, hoops, but... Um, not even the greatest can do that. So Argentina come out three two. Maradona as captain lifts the uh, the uh, trophy there. That rather strange trophy that um, never quite got used to. How can you have something as beautiful as that Jules Rimet trophy and then um, have something as sort of lumpen as the 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 one that they have? I'm sure it looks nice close up, but he holds that up. He's 26 at this point. Um, the world is before him. Uh, unfortunately, there was quite a lot of other things before him which uh, <laughs> went into him in various different ways. And um, that uh, that is, is, as the uh, deathless phrase has it, well documented. But speaking of well documented, I think we've well documented Mexico 86 over the knockout stages in this podcast and the previous podcast in the group stages. Um, I'll come back to you, gentlemen, if you have any closing remarks, but I propose to finish uh, pretty pretty soon and wrap up after this. So, yeah. uh, closing remarks. Oh, just So, we've got a few readers' questions. Thank you for those. We'll maybe oh, do, are we going to no, do them now? Should we do them in a separate pod? I need to walk the dogs. <laughs> yeah, I um, think we're, we're, <laughs> we're, ten pa- we're, we're over two hours in, so and we can have a... a we, we're very grateful for those questions, but perhaps let's address them in a, in a later part. Yeah, I, mean, I think my abiding memories of the tournament are just really obvious ones. Maradona obviously dominated it like no player has ever dominated a World Cup. Garincha probably the closest in 62, but still not on the same level. Um, and the quality of goals, which ties in with Maradona, uh, I think it's the best World Cup ever in terms of um, the portfolio of goals. In addition to that, you had two or three classic matches, some incredible moments and stories. Um, kind of teams like Denmark and USSR, who were spectacular kind of burn themselves out um so overall i think really a really good world cup I'm not sure and a decent a... England, decent england team yeah. as well always makes a difference mm. for for us i'm obviously. not sure there's been a better world cup since maybe 2018 i don't know um but uh yeah certainly and the last great world cup final i would say i know um i know 2000 or not great last memorably dramatic world cup final because although 2018 had a lot of goals it was kind of done after about 50 minutes. Um, so, yeah, a very good World Cup, all told, I would say. Mike? Uh, yeah, same kind of... Uh, same feelings, really. I just just feel... 
a bit blessed, I suppose, that that was my first World Cup. Uh, you know, the first time you watch a World, it's a very formative experience. You know, it leaves a bit of a big impression. Imagine if your first one. You and... Imagine if your first one was two thousand and ten. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. You know um, what mine was? Mine as a seven-year-old was 1970. Beat that, eh? Oh, yeah, that's, wow, that's yeah, the ultimate. Yeah. Yeah. You win. Yeah, that would be the ultimate. <laughs> but I think, um, as Rob says, the the portfolio of goals, uh, some of the teams you had in it, you know, at like Denmark, obviously they left a, a very big impression on Rob and I. Um, and great games, you know, you had the Brazil, France, and the USSR and Belgium, and the great individual performance of all time at a World Cup or any other international tournament. I mean, to get all that in one tournament, um, you know, we were very, very lucky. We were indeed, and it remains only uh, for us to wrap now, and uh, I'll say thank you very much to Rob Smythe. Thank you. Thanks very much to Mike Gibbons. Thanks, guys. And thank you very much to uh, Lee Calvert, who's in the background pressing buttons and doing clever stuff. Uh, So we're always grateful to Lee. But most of all, of course, we are grateful to you, our listeners. So uh, we'll be back very soon with another episode of Ness and Dorma. But for now, bye-bye. Stay safe.